0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God, glory to thee. Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, our treasure of every good and bestower of life. Come and dwell in us and cleanse the very stain and save our souls, O good one. Sit down. Last month, uh, the talk was about rationalism, which I know for some, you know, certain words, can be intimidating, and uh, and I don't mean to use words that will turn some of you off. But rationalism is just simple. It just means someone who tries to explain everything using their mind, using logic and reason. And I mentioned last time that Elder Paisios, a great elder, mentioned that rationalism in other words, using your mind to try and work things out logically and with reason, it it is not compatible with spiritual life. And then I pointed out that the elder does not mean that one rejects logic and one rejects uh, reason because God has given us that and with logic and reason, that's why we have what we have today in the world. All that was developed, whether it's uh, science and law and engineering and whatever you can think of, medicine, this has all come about with logic and reason. So the church is not against logic and reason. What the church is against is those who try to use logic and reason to work out the spiritual, And that's where the problem begins, because there are many things in Christianity, in Orthodoxy, which cannot be explained with the mind, whether they are miracles, whether they are teachings in the gospel, whether they are even demonic things like supernatural things, that people try and rationalise, try to work it out with their mind. And what happens when they do that is, as the elder says, they lose themselves. Actually, the elder says, which, is the, which will be probably the name of this talk, is that when you try and use logic and reason in spiritual life, God's grace leaves the person. Not that there is not an aspect of logic, even for me to speak now, even though I'm speaking about spiritual uh, matters, I'm obviously using some logic and some reason to be able to structure, it, to speak, etc. But that does not mean that my whole being is absorbed within logic and reason to do with the spiritual, because if it was, then I would be crazy by now. Because actually, the elder says that those who try to do that become deceived and fall into heresy, fall into deception. Etc. So, we have we obviously even when we read a book, we're using some logic and some reasoning. But we what we need is what the elder says is we need faith. The atheists, which I actually saw a documentary the other, I think it was last night, with two main atheists who say that their mission is to rid the world of faith. They believe that faith is a disease, similar to what Lenin said. They believe that faith is what makes the world backward, and as soon as people stop going according to faith, then civilization will be enlightened and will go forward. They are two of the worst um, atheists. We don't hate the people, but I'm just bringing to your attention their teaching. They believe that all the world's problems are because of religion. And they look at, for example, fundamentalist Christians, like fanatical Christians, even amongst the Orthodox, there are fanatics. And also in um, Islam, in the Jewish religion, all religions have people who are obsessed and fanatical and they use those examples as saying religion is bad news and therefore it must be eradicated from the world. Another atheist said or agnostic as he calls himself, he says that um, we shouldn't fight religion like they did in Russia and he gives the example that it didn't work because after 70 years of it, that at the end Russia is one of the most religious countries in the world and people are going back to church full on, with, with full fervour even though they had 70 or 80 years of atheism. So he believes that these other two. He agrees with what, what with what the other two say, but he says that we shouldn't become polemical. That's what he says. He believes that uh, their views should be taught to people in a reasonable way, in a proper way with discussions, etc. And that's how you convert people to become like them, which are atheists. Which they're free. I don't hate the people. Actually, I don't. I, um, I believe that everyone's free, that God has given freedom and that there's no need for the church to go and persecute these people because that's what it can appear a lot of times is when the church starts becoming irate, becomes angry or starts to preach against them in an aggressive way or a polemical way, it can make out that we are threatened But when you read the lives of Elder Paisios, Elder Porphyrios, and Russian Elders, Serbian Elders, you see that when they dealt with these people, they dealt with them in a way that was quite spiritually meek, humble, with love. Why did they do that? Why didn't they try and convert them? I hate the word convert. But why didn't they try to convert, using the everyday term? Because they knew that faith is given to someone by God. For example, a lot of us weren't brought up in the church or a lot of us didn't believe when we were younger or even older and then suddenly we began to believe and start coming to church and start to lead a Christian life. Why? Because you're special. No, but because God gave his grace to enable that person to live that life. Now the question arises, wouldn't he give those atheists his grace as well? Yes, he can give the grace if they want. At this time, they don't want. But we don't know until the end of, un, the end of their lives whether they change because there have been many who were atheists who, without even being forced to change, converted and became Christians or even other religions, as us say. But they were, they were staunch atheists, really fanatical atheists, who later on changed. So from that we see, as, as for the ones that changed to become Buddhists or Hindus or whatever, i leave that in God's hands to judge exactly what's happening there, but on an, from a Christian point of view, from an Orthodox point of view, when someone changes their life and comes to the church, then it's from God's grace. And I've been influenced by that, and a lot of times when I speak to people and they say to me that they're atheists or that they don't understand, whatever. the other day I was speaking to a tradesman that came to the monastery to do some work, and we were speaking there, and he couldn't understand why sex outside of marriage, it's a sin. He says it's, it's natural and that he's a man, et etc. et cetera. And um, I didn't become angry. I didn't throw him out. I didn't tell him off I didn't say anything I just said to him that uh, you don't think it's a sin he goes no I go okay then let's let's give it time now why did I say that because you can't force someone to change how does he change well through prayer it depends on how much love I've got. If I've got a lot of love, then God will listen to my prayer. If I've got humility, God will listen to my prayer. If I have repentance, God will listen to my prayer. If I've only got a little bit, then God listens a little bit. It depends on our own condition. So if that person continues, as Elder Paiso said, which I mentioned about half a year ago, if a person continues in a, in, on a wrong way, we should blame ourselves that we lack faith or that our lives aren't proper to pray to God so that person can change. So I believe, in the, with this tradesman, for example, he was orthodox, I believe that he should be left alone and just pray for him and then let God, who has more love for him than me, or all of us put together, like our love, even if you put the whole world together and put all the love together, it would be nothing compared to God's love. If God's love is so great, then he wants... God wants that person to be saved more than what we want to be saved. We always forget that God is always working in people's lives trying to change, trying to help them, trying to come to the truth. When we try to change someone or bring someone to the truth in a mean way, in an angry way, we are saying, it's as if we're saying that we know more than God, that we are above God. That God doesn't know, so you can see that when we do those things, it's blasphemous. A person wrote an email the other day and said that he went and saw an elder in in America, Elder Frem, which is a, a he is I believe he's a, a great elder, and he went there and he said that when he was speaking to the elder, that the elder didn't show like it, it was it, like he was very calm, very loving, but anything that this person said to the elder was like the the elder wasn't showing any passion or anything of, for him to say, oh, that's wrong, don't do that, be careful of that. It was like leaving and he wanted to know why does, why does he do that? I said, because Elder Ephraim, just like all the elders and Eldresses, understands that everything comes from God's grace. And therefore, they will say a few things, but they believe that prayer is the most important thing. A lot of times you just got to stop with someone. You might say something, you might say nothing, and just to pray for them. And that has more effect in helping someone than what our own way. St John of Kronstadt, one of the greatest saints of the R- Russian Orthodox Church that died just before the revolution, a few years before the revolution, he actually said that when he tries to help someone himself, a lot of times the passions get involved. So he admits he's got passions, something that we can't admit. A lot of times when we, we see Christians, they don't understand that when they see their passions, they become all alarmed. They go, oh, I've got passions. But they don't understand that the saints had passions. But anyway, so St John of Cronstan admitted that he might get anger or some passions get mixed up and make the whole thing a mess. And he actually says in his diary, which is called My Life in Christ, he says that it's better at times, to pray for a person rather than to speak to them. So that was a little bit on that. So last week, I read a number of stories from the uh, from the books of the Orthodox Church. I read about six or seven of them, and a lot of you admitted at the end that it, it did cause you to get confused because the stories were illogical like the monk who his spiritual father told him go water a stick it was just a stick he put a stick in the ground he said to go and water it which is illogical because you don't, sticks don't grow but the monk did obedience and then after 3 years of watering this in an illogical way it's unreasonable doesn't make sense at all but this person did his obedience and then the stick began to grow and it bared fruits, and they say that this that, that was the fruits of, of um obedience. And these stories in the lives of saints, and all these stories in the Yerundiko, as we call them, in the in the saints of the desert fathers, a lot of these make and, and and in the Bible one can say, that doesn't make sense. And some of you were saying to me, Oh, can you explain some 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 of those stories? Because um, it was interesting, like the one where there were some elders in the desert and then some thieves came to, to, to rob them and the elders didn't say it was their house and they actually helped them. And not only that, when the thieves didn't see something that was somewhere, they said, oh, look, there's some more there. And some of you said to me later on, I just, that doesn't make sense. And then I made a little joke where I said, does that mean that if we want to be Christians, that we open up our houses to allow thieves to come in and take all our stuff? And the answer was, I'll give you a little answer to that, And the answer is that those elders had no families. Those elders had given everything up. They left father, mother, brother, sister. Some of them were married. Some of them had children. They just left everything and went into the desert. And therefore, if they left everything and someone comes to steal something, what do they want it for? Because they left everything in the first place. But Elder Paisio says that Christians who live in the world must be very careful be very careful of your finances or because we're Christians as some people think that Christians are stupid and sometimes some are and allow people to rob you or to take things. At one stage in, when I first entered the spiritual life I read those things of the Desert Fathers I go oh well what's the point why don't we just leave things be and if people take things whatever That's, this is what I'm trying to say that we, we become confused because we're inexperienced and then I thought to myself when I went to Manathos and went overseas to different monasteries in Palestine and things like that, I noticed that the monasteries had walls that were higher than this, this ceiling here and doors that were as thick as this and they had on top of the big doors, they had like um, part of the brickwork or the, the stonework that was coming out and there was a hole there. And I wondered what was that hole? Does anyone know what the hole was? The hole was where the monks used to pour hot oil down onto those who were attacking the monastery to enter, to to defile the monastery, to destroy things. So they used to pour hot oil down to get them away from the door so they don't break the door down. And then I thought to myself, well, how does all that work? And to me, it shows the following, that apart from those Desert Fathers, which are quite exceptional, that in general... We're given a mind, we're given a brain, we're given uh, 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 sense to be sensible, that we have to use whatever we can to do things in our life. For example, there might be a woman who reads a lot of books, and she's got a couple of children, and she's so absorbed in the books, and she wants to do what the books say. So she reads some spiritual mothers there that prayed all day and were in completely with God all the time. Some, some were like that. So what she does is she sits there and she believes that God or an angel or some saints are going to come and cook for her children while she's enjoying her spiritual trances or whatever she thinks that she's got. And that's not correct we have to always make an effort in whatever we do. We have a car, we've got to service it because it can become dangerous, not only for yourself but for your family or those who come in it or for others on the road. You don't just sit there and say, oh, God will, God will protect me. Like someone once who said to me that they went down to, um, in the middle of the night, what they were doing there, some elderly woman, that she was down at Central Railway here in Sydney which is very dangerous, and she was going underneath those tunnels, they're just walking around, and she goes, I did my cross and I knew that God would protect me. See, that's silly because it says in the Our Father, and, you know, lead us not into temptation. We don't put ourselves in temptations. If your garden needs to be cultivated, it means that you've got to cultivate it. It doesn't mean that you can sit there and think that God's going to arrange something for it to be done. If you, for example, if you're thirsty, of course some kids just get their parents to do it, but let's just say in general, if you're thirsty, you must exert yourself, get up and get water. But if someone can't get up, then that person, because they're sick, disabled or whatever, that person then can pray and say, God, please bring someone along to help me. Then one person at the end of the talk last time, she said that um, she read a story in the prologue and she said that it really made an impression on her. And I said to her, I was trying to find it with, within my bunch, that's why it took me so long, I said I couldn't find that particular story. And, and then I looked through it with, with her and I found it and I wanted to say this one as well to show you just some things which sound to us illogical. It says that... Um, a certain saint, which became a saint later, Saint Agapios, was captured by pirates as a young man taken off to Asia and sold it, and sold to an Arab. Agapios spent 12 whole years with this Arab, silent and obedient, and for 12 whole years he prayed to the Mother of God to free him from slavery. That's okay. One m- night, the Mother of God appeared to him and told him to get up and go off without fear back to his elder. When the elder saw Agapios, he was sorrowful thinking that Agapios had escaped by himself from his owner, and he said to him, My child, you have deceived your master, but you have in no wise deceived God. On the day of the dreadful judgment, you will have to answer for the money with which your owner bought you to serve him. So go back and serve your owner faithfully. Agapios, faithful and obedient, went to his elder, went back at once to Asia and presented himself to his owner. Now, when I read this years ago, and sometimes still, I still, sometimes, it just, when you try to work it out with your mind, when you try to work it out with your logic, in other words, with reason, it becomes, uh, it actually makes my head uh, feel like it's going to explode and some of you would have to say the same now what's even peculiar here is that the mother of god herself told him to leave and that she appeared to him told him to leave but yet even though agapius went back to his elder and would have relayed that to him that the mother of god etc the elder said no what you did was wrong, it's a sin because your, your master paid money, etc. So, what do you think of that? Don't you find that to be quite um, illogical and something that would make your mind spin around? Now, in the spiritual life, like I advised last month, is the following what Elder Paiso said. When you read something and you don't understand it, when your mind tries to take control, because it's not just atheists that are rationalists. In a way, we all have this disease of trying to work things out. Some of us can have faith at times, and then at other times our faith is low, then we go towards this type of thinking, especially in situations. A woman's got a a horrible husband, and then she thinks to herself, I shouldn't really divorce because the church teaches not to divorce. And then she becomes all confused. What does she do? She tries to work it out in her mind what to do. And many other things, which I'm going to read to your whole list in a minute. There are many things in our life which we can't, not just when you read spiritual books, in everything in our life. A mother who just lost her child, a young baby, for example. That woman would go through a whole attack of rationalism. If God is love, then how could he do that? And what did I do? And this is not right. And my child didn't have time to live and to grow and for me to see the child grow and for it to get married, get study, etc. So all these things happen to all of us. I don't think that when I, in the beginning, when I spoke about the atheists, that that's why I don't really mind these atheists don't bother me. Because why? It's because they do their job, but the point is that if a lot of people are becoming atheists in this world, it's because the Orthodox who are supposed to be the salt of the earth, as Christ says, when Christ says, you are the salt of the earth. What does salt do to food? It preserves it. So it won't go off. When Christ said, we are the salt of the world, he meant that Christians who are all over the world should be like salt such that, Their presence, their life, their holiness, their prayers should be slowly, slowly ridding the world of corruption, of the world becoming rotten. Like, as I said, salt in food helps the food not to go off. Christians in the world help the world not to go off. Sometimes you hear people say, even priests and nuns sometimes and other spiritual people, they say, oh, look at the world, look at the world, look how it's become, look how it's become. And it's just continuing, oh, look how the children have gone off and look at the divorce rate and look at this and look at that. It's just all the time like it makes you a bit sick. And And the reason why I don't get disturbed is because after reading the elders, you can see what they say. And they say that why do we have to look at the world and judge the world that they're so horrible little people that have gone away from God or whatever goes on in our brains when we should blame ourselves. Because if we were better Christians, then our prayers and our holiness of life would come off. What does Seraphim of Sarov say? Save yourself. In other words, work on yourself. Become holy. And thousands around you will be saved. What does St. John Chrysostom say? He says, when the monasteries are filled, because we know that the monasteries produce holiness because of their everyday life, spiritual life, services, etc., their obedience, constant repentance, and things like that. When the monasteries are filled, he says, then the jails are empty and the hospitals are empty. So we as Orthodox Christians have no right to, to say, oh, the crime has gone up. That's why I don't speak about those things. I mean, I'll make reference to it, but not as if to say, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. So we don't have a right to say, oh, the crime's gone up, the abortion rate's gone up, the divorce rate's gone up, there's drugs and alcohol and the children have been lost and and, 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 there's all the de- and the devil's got control of the world because um, uh, he, um, with, through magic and through Harry Potter, for example, and all these other things that are happening in Why don't we have a right to say that? Because if the world's become corrupt, it's because we have lost our saltiness, as Christ says. We as Orthodox Christians are not really leading spiritual lives so that we can have an effect on the world. But that's why we shouldn't complain, we should shut our mouths. Some of you might ask or might be thinking, does he mean, meaning me, does he mean that we shouldn't care? Caring is a different thing to complaining. Caring is a a different thing to having this hopeless mentality. Someone said that they were at a monastery overseas and one of the nuns was saying, whoa, 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 how the world's become, with drugs and this and that, and just kept on going on and on. And the person said to me, it was like, oh, it's just too hopeless. It's like a, a hopeless situation. And if I sat down here all night and said about those things, then I would expect you to leave because, I mean, what's the, that, that's not productive. Anyone with two eyes and a mind, using our logic, that, that, so you're allowed to use logic there, can see what's happening. So am I saying that we don't care? No, or that we shouldn't care. We have to care but not complain. We need to blame ourselves. Once we start blaming ourselves, we begin to kind of cut off of judging those because a lot of times when we, as we're saying, whoa, I'll oh, look at those children, how they've become. It's the parent's fault. I'll oh, look at that person he's an alcoholic. That's his fault. What does he need to go and get help? Or whatever, or whatever. So we begin to make judgments when we have that woe, woe, woe spirit. But when we have the spirit of it's our fault, which is what the elder said in the first talk that I went through, was it 15 or 16, maybe talk 16 or whatever, 17, Uh, Elder Bayus was there where he says, Remember that example? He says, If I know there's a couple in Athens, because he's from Greece, when I know there's a couple in Athens who are in the middle of a divorce, I blame myself because he says, If I was holier, if my prayers were stronger, if my life was better, then God would be more inclined to listen to my prayers. So he blamed himself. So that's why he didn't really judge those people in that way. So, no, we will care, we will blame ourselves. And we'll do one more thing, which a lot of us do. We yap, 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 complain, 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 always judge, but we never do one thing. We never pray for those people. All we do is say, oh, how they've become, and how they've become. And it's like we're like the Pharisee, the uh, the Pharisee in the um, parable of the the Pharisee and the publican, where he goes, oh, thanks God that I'm not like that that, um, publican. In other words, it's like we're saying, thanks God that, I'm not an alcoholic or I'm not a gambler or I'm not a prostitute or I'm not gay or I'm not a drug addict or I'm not in the middle of a divorce or whatever. So that means we, it's like we are uh, modern-day Pharisees. So what the, what the advice is is exactly what Elder Pais just said. That's why we read these elders. He said he, that we must pray for those people. However, if our lives aren't proper, then where our prayers going to go, they're going to bounce off the ceiling. They're not going to penetrate and go to heaven to, so that God can, not that God doesn't hear, he hears everything, but God looks at the heart. And if our heart's not correct, our faith is lacking, that we're not repenting, that we're not struggling, then our prayers are not going to be heard. So today I'm going to give some homework. That made their faces drop. Um, the, the, the homework is as follows. You know, remember I said last time we've got the Oprah book club, so I'm going to refer some books to you, just like Oprah has her little her book club and she refers people. I'm going to actually say which books that I think are good, what they're about, and tell you about that. But also... We should actually have some homework. Being a, a next teacher, it's in my blood is to give homework. Actually, they used to call me the homework king. I was one of. I I used to give so much homework at school to the students that uh, parent-teacher night, the parents would come and say, "I'm um, say I was, was at a boy school. Um, my son just does maths continually. Just that's all he does. Go right." So she goes, I'm... Um, but hours of it, hours of maths. Not that I gave him hours. Um, and, and I said, yes, and what do you think about it? He goes, but he never liked maths before. And I said, well, that's what you try to do. You try to make the person interested so that he goes home and you say to them, you're required to do 20 minutes if you're in junior high school, senior high school, you do half an hour. If you want to do more than that, you can. So you give them more and most of them did it and they, and they actually did well. So we're going to give homework here as well. The homework is... That, we, that for you people, and all of us, including myself, to incorporate within our prayers, prayers for others. By praying for others, we actually come outside of ourselves, because that's a lot of the problems today. So people that go to psychologists, most of the time the psychologist, all he's trying to do is trying to get the person to come outside of themselves to stop thinking about themselves and their problems and only them. That's what they're trying to do. they try to say, okay, well, let's look at this and look at that, and that's what they do. They can do whatever they want. But the point is that these psychologists believe that they have got this revolutionary type of um, approach when the church has been uh, uh, teaching that for thousands of years because the church says, no greater love has someone than to lay down their life for someone else. What does that mean? Apart from dying for someone else, but also on, a, on, a, on another level, it means living your life for others. And Elder Paisio says that, that even when he was really sick, and Elder Porfirios, when he was really sick with horrible diseases, horrible, painful sicknesses, as most of you who were here for talk 15 would have heard, and the other talk of elder, the life of Elder um, the uh, elder um, Porfirios, you'll see that they had really horrible sicknesses, very painful. And what they said is that by involving themselves with others, by helping others, by caring about others, it helped them to come out of themselves, to not be focused on themselves, woe is me, woe is me, and helping others. But, not just, but in general, All of us can say, oh, woe is me, my child is disruptive, or woe is me, I've got a a wife who can't cook, or woe is me, I'm unemployed, or woe is me, I'm I'm broke, I'm going to lose my house. All these things are true. But what the church teaches is that people need to come out of themselves and serve others and help others. So not that Freud and all the rest of them think, that they have discovered the, the truth. Well, the church has always known that. So let's get back to the story there. So that was a bit of a side issue but important. So how should we look at this? The mother of God told the young fellow there, the, the monk, to leave his master, escape. But the elder told him that he shouldn't have done that. We read in Lives of Saints other examples where holy people were under slavery and they escaped and no-one told them to go back. But sometimes we do see these exceptional examples. In the first century of Christianity, when the church came about there, what happened was that a lot of people were under slavery. A lot of those slaves became Christians and a lot of those Christian slaves had masters who also became Christians. So they were owned by a fellow Christian. St Paul had discernment, not like the modern theologians and these people who use their brain try to say that, as I said before, that St Paul was um, a male chauvinist or St Paul had certain uh, horrible type of um, uh, ideas which is blasphemous. And one of the accusations against St. Paul is the fact that he, of, of his attitude towards slavery. What did he say? In his epistles, he actually says to people that they should stay with their masters. And if their masters are Christian, even more so that you should be obedient to them because they are Christians. But why did he do that? Why didn't he write an epistle and to say to the people, okay, you people who are Christians have to free your slaves because he was St Paul. Because this shows you a very important example that St Paul had to deal with the times, just like in all periods of the church, the saints had to deal with what they had. Like, for example, if they were under the Muslims, they had to work out how to deal with them. If they are under the atheists, they had to deal with them. When they're under the um, others, they learned to do with, under the Catholics, for example, they had to learn how to do with them. If St Paul did do that, it would discredit Christianity. St Paul, like, for example, uh, some of the um, other issues, which I can't remember now, but some of the issues in those times was part of life. I'll give you an example. I'm a priest. I'm standing here now. And today we're living in a time where people are, I won't say possessed, but we'll say people are obsessed with women and careers. If I come along and say to people that something contrary to that, which has been basically just about accepted pretty much in full, then that's going to cause a problem, and that's going to cause a scandal and then people are going to think that I am anti-woman or the church is anti-woman, et etc. et cetera. So what happens is that the, the, um, the church has its views on obviously on upbringing of children, which we're going to go through later on, but it has to be treated in a gentle way, be, that topic, because a lot of people here have been brought up from the television and from all the medias and things like that, has been brought up and and, and in some ways have incorrect views exactly on women. I'm not saying that women aren't allowed to have careers. But what I'm saying is that when you speak about a topic which is so hot, you have to be very careful because there's no real canons of the church which say women can't have a career. Now, on the topic of homosexuality, for example, I could say here and say straight out that that's a sin because the canons and the teachings of the church are clear. Abortion. The canons of the church are clear on that topic. But there are a lot of issues, for example, on daycare. Do we send children to daycare? We don't send children to daycare. What happens there? This is another hot issue which can, become, uh, which, which can make people become more flared up about it and you have to be very, very careful how it is treated. So St Paul lived in a time where slavery was a way of life. It was part of the Roman Empire. And St Paul said, if you're a slave, it doesn't mean that you can't keep on being a Christian. If you're a slave, it doesn't mean that you can't serve God. It doesn't matter if you're a slave to a person. What's more important is not to be a slave to your passions. But after some centuries, it was wiped out. But it took a number of centuries. So some people think that the church is just black and white and just does things automatically. It takes it's a very, it's like even the, the matter on circumcision in those days, you know, the whether to do it, not to do it, etc. And you know that if you look, if you read the um, holy fathers, you'll see that they really treated topics with, with really carefully. So anyway, in this case, we know from lives of saints that some people did run away from their masters and they weren't told to go back. And I'm questioning here, my question, in using logic now, which is allowed to some degree but not to become blasphemous. And the logic is, if the mother of God appeared to this person and told this person to leave, then why did his elder tell him to go back? Why did his elder go above the mother of God? And in orthodox spirituality, you'll know the following, or you'll you'll learn tonight the following. Obedience to a spiritual father is above everything. And the reason for that is because through obedience, one comes closer to God. In this case, was it the mother of God that appeared? Obviously, the story is saying it was. But remember the, the example of a monk who was praying in his cell And Christ appeared, and the monk didn't know, is it Christ, is it the devil? And he actually spoke quite, you know, in a a very negative way and said, go away, I don't want to see you. I don't want to see you, in a way, rude, because it was Christ. But did Christ punish him or get upset, one can say? using human terms, no, because we are taught by the church to disregard visions, to disregard dreams, to ignore them, because it could be a deception. That monk w- w- didn't have the discernment to know, was that Christ, was that not? Only some, very few who had reached what we say, Thaustus, that reached a very high level of spirituality were able to discern what was from God, what was not. We don't have that. Even someone can be a saint and still not have it. I'm talking about there are levels of saints. There are some saints that have reached what's called illumination. There's other saints that have reached a higher level. In general, we are taught to reject dreams and to reject visions. Therefore, what the elder did was correct. He says, not not interested in that vision, but but it was the mother of God. I'm not interested in the vision. What I'm interested in is that for you to go back. Now, sometimes spiritual fathers can give wrong advice. And in this case, perhaps it was a wrong. It was not a very. It wasn't good advice. Well, the person's free. That's it. He's free. If he sends him to go back to there, maybe this Arab will try and convert him to become a Muslim. So why send him back? Perhaps it was a mistake. Perhaps we don't. We don't know. But what's important is this: the result. When the Arab heard the story from the young uh, person, he was amazed. At the virtues of the Christians, like he was knocked out, he was saying, I can't believe this, that this person was told to come back because I would lose my money. He was so overwhelmed with that that he took his two sons with him to the holy mountain, to Athos, and they were baptised, became monks to their deaths. They lived an ascetical life. And they were under Agapitos' um, elder, but when the elder died, they became spiritual children of the once owned slave. In other words, the young monk who later on grew up, that Arab who was his master with his two children, became obedient to him, etc. So, what the thing is here is that not everything that we hear from the spiritual father at the time can be logical. And even if the spiritual father can make a mistake, if the person does obedience and the spiritual father gives the instruction in humility, but just maybe made a little mistake there, whatever, it doesn't matter because God will fix it up. Now, in this case, we can say perhaps it was wrong advice. Perhaps he was enlightened. We don't know. It doesn't say. doesn't matter. The thing is, that's the, um, that's the church's teaching. That young monk has to be obedient to his spiritual father. He was, went back, and it all worked out. So there's an example. See, with our minds, we become... We like you want to pull out your hair. But using faith, we can be calm and say, I can see what's going on here with faith. However, faith develops in people. Sometimes it's smaller. smaller. So what Elder Baisha says... When you're reading something, you don't understand it, don't reject it, don't become angry, don't become blasphemous, leave it. Just say to yourself, there's something there, I just don't see it. When God chooses and when he chooses, if he chooses, he will make it known to me as time goes on. Imagine now, who do we think we are, that everything we read, we understand, I read that, bang, I understand it, read that, I understand it, read that, I understand it. That is actually proud. Well, that's pride to the highest level. Elder Epiphanios, another great elder in Greece, which I also met for 10 minutes or so once, doesn't mean that because I met him I'm saved. It just means that uh, I experienced him to a certain level. But to me, he looked like an ordinary priest. But within him was, but that's good. But then again, that, that, that's how the saints are. A lot of the saints, maybe after a while when they start to manifest certain divine things, but in general, uh, saints are unknown a lot of times. No one knows. No one can tell. They themselves don't even know that they're saints. It could be a person now in hospital who is dying, for example, and is full of faith. And he's saying, may your will be done. Repenting of their sins, com- uh, confessing, communing, having full trust in God in the, in, the, in, in the next life. And for that person at that time, for however long, that person can actually come in and out of saintliness, of being like a saint. But we don't know. We just go there and see a person suffering. The mathematics of God, Father Epifanio says, is completely different from the mathematics of humans. For humans, as I've mentioned this before, two and two equal four. For God, two and two can make five, 15 or anything else. If you don't remember much today, remember that. This is what we're saying, that God's providence, God's ways, you can't understand them. We can't fit them into our minds. And we have to accept that. And when God wants to, he can give us his grace, where we obtain faith, to understand things as much as he wants us to understand And this is important for us. Two and two is four, using logic and reason. We have a a whole field of mathematics that's been developed over the centuries. A high level, just like in science, God's not against that because God is the one who inspires them to produce these things. But to say that maths and science and everything else, that's it, and there's nothing above that, and that we have to reject everything holy, and we have to reject the spiritual life, is satanic. Father Ephraim of Katunakia, another Father Ephraim, he was the one I told you last month that I heard that he was a very uh, holy person and I thought to myself, but who am I? But anyway, to go and knock on the door and to see... You know, to see him, etc. And uh, he didn't open the door. And it doesn't open the door to hardly anyone. And he was like what we call an ascetic, a recluse, very spiritual person. And there's a book written about him. I don't think we have that book, I'm not sure. But anyway, there's two examples here which are in his book. And I found the two examples great. The first one, he said, this is the elder himself speaking, where he says, I had a cousin who suffered from mental illness. And after 20 years of suffering this mental illness, the cousin died. Now, I don't know how old he was. He he could have got the mental illness at 20 and he died at 40. could have got the mental illness at 10 and died at 30. I don't know. But all I know, what, what he's saying here is that the person suffered for 20 years of mental illness. And the elder says, believe me, I saw her with the eyes of my soul among hosts of angels. In other words, because he had he had this sanctity, he was able to see with his spiritual eyes, which we've gone through that a lot in those past talks with Elder Paisios and Elder Porfirios. We mentioned that a lot. That with their spiritual eyes, they were able to see things, and we've gone through all that before uh, there in there the other talks. There, but he had that same gift, and he was able to see his cousin, who had suffered for 20 years, amongst the angels. She was praising the Holy Trinity in the company of angels. Now, this is where we start to have problems. For those who use rationalism, even orthodox clergy, hierarchs, theologians, etc., or just ordinary Orthodox Christians too, uh, they sometimes don't like these type of things. They find that it's too, it's too much for them because they don't believe it a lot of times. I remember once someone telling me that they went to a church. It doesn't have to be here. It can be any country. So I'm not going to say here. It could be in Greece. It could be... All... And they said to me, I don't know why, but when that bishop speaks... He never mentions anything of these type of things. just mentions theological things and things that no one really understands. And not only that, they say he doesn't even speak about even um, spiritual struggle. Now, those type of people, the truth is that they uh, don't like these topics. Or if they do speak about it, they speak about it really with difficulty. They are... Uncomfortable. This is because they have become absorbed in rationalism, which is maybe because they've studied in university for so many years. They've studied theology at a university level. So when you go to university and you write some essays, uh, and especially if some of the lecturers, which in, in a lot of the universities, even in Greece... The, a lot of the lecturers aren't even proper orthodox. They don't even believe. But they, have, they've, they're, um, they might be teaching church history. See, that's what Elder Paisa says. When they do speak about things, it's a more of a historical type of theoretical type of thing. And when you write an essay for these people, it's a bit hard to use within your essay an example that an angel appeared to them. They don't like that. Then the elder says you see all she did was to be patient through her sadness and sorrow she was almost paralyzed and she was unable even to care for herself nevertheless she was patient throughout this whole trial sent by god and look where he finally placed her among the angelic hosts such an honor was vasiliki rendered she was praising the lord along with the angels from this we can i could speak for the next hours on this. But anyway, I'll speak somewhat on this. Firstly, I've been trying to say within these talks not to have this view that any type of mental illness is something which is bad, something which is just doesn't go. If you're with God, you can't have any mental illness. Father Seraphim Rose says from America, a convert who became orthodox, he actually said that Today, a lot of people are saved through mental illnesses because of our minds. Like I've said before, our minds are very proud. And I have, from my own experience as well, but people have I've often said during guidance that they say that I can't get the pride out of my mind. It's that much because a lot of us have been brought up on pride from very young And it's deeply rooted. So, what God does is, He knows that people really can't do it. It's a lot of times, it is exactly that, that is correct. So, He sends as a cleansing, as a way for those people to be rectified, to come closer to Him, a mental illness, because mental illness is very humbling. Very humbling. He might be a person who can have a very good job, can even be a manager of a company, whatever, but he can have certain phobias. And for that person, it's really difficult for someone to know, it's very humbling for someone to know that this big manager or this, you know, important person has a phobia which could be something as, as silly as, um, you know, uh, a cat. Or or dirt or whatever. It could be anything. But a lot of times God allows that as a way to help us. And um, depression, even though it does come a lot of times from sin, it comes from unrepentance. It comes from the fact that we can't repent. Depression or sent by God for a a, a trial because even, you know, we have some saints who actually had depression even though they, they were very holy, but that God did that as a trial. But in general, depression comes from sins, where we're unrepentant. And I read once in a, in a book uh, that uh, it was a very, I really, I've never forgot it. It says that out of God's love for those who can't rectify themselves, can't really get into the struggle. There are people who just can't struggle spiritually. It's very hard for them. Mentally, because of mental, whatever, there's a lot of issues. They can't struggle and God sends the depression to Christians. They're not the ones who are outside because he can send a depression to someone that can make them come to the church. I'm talking about now those who are in the church. Sends them a depression as a way of cleansing, as a way to help them to attain humility. If the person accepts their mental illness in humility, then they could be better off than what they were if they never had the mental illness. Now, some of you will find maybe that illogical and some of you will understand it. I believe, and, and this is a, a, a patristic teaching, every, everyone has mental illness. Actually, the Holy Fathers say mental illness is someone who has thoughts which they can't a lot of times control, the thoughts coming in and out, whatever, and that's what the elders did. They struggled, 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 struggled to be able to cut those thoughts off and to dwell in God and things like that, which is above our pay grade, we can say. But in general, we all have issues, some more and some less. Passions also help to humble us. Remember what it said about St. Paul says in Romans, where he's talking about the, the, those who were worshipping idols and they believed in most ridiculous things and were worshipping four-legged animals and all these things. And St Paul says that God gave them up, gave up those philosophers to really bad passions. And what were the passions? He says the passion was for them to lust one for another. In other words, homosexuality and other things along those lines. That he actually allowed that to happen as a way to humble them. You might say, oh, but they were pagans and therefore they didn't, they didn't think it was a sin or they didn't think it was bad. You know, in those days, unlike today, they actually, even though it was practiced, it wasn't, it was looked down at. It was still looked down at. And that's what they're trying to do now, trying to make us think that it's all normal. But the point is there that that's what happens. So passions help us, alcoholism helps us too a lot of times, gambling, all these things are there to help us to become humble. I was speaking once to a, a young, to a fellow who was an alcoholic and um, he said he was going really, really well for a while and he said that he was at his brother-in-law's place or something like that and then he said, I don't know why, all I know is I woke up four days later because I went into a, com- a really bad binge of drinking where he just didn't even know where he was, what he was, for four days, just drank himself that to that level. And he was saying to me, I don't know why. I don't know why. I was there and all of a sudden, I don't remember after that. And I was a bit suspicious there, not in a bad way, but in a good way, trying to help him, since he did ask from his heart, which is very important, that he asked, why am I like that? Why did that happen? So that, that comes from the heart. Even if the person speaking to someone who's putrid, then God a lot of times can enlighten the other person to give the answer according to the faith of the other person. Anyway, so he asked with his heart, why am I like this? He actually was really broken down. And I said to him, what were you doing at the time, up to the time that you remember? And he said, I was helping with the fence. We were making a fence and I was helping them with the fence. Now, this person was a person who didn't do much in his life. In other words, I think he was really employed because obviously it's a bit hard to be employed when you've got that trouble there. And I don't think he was a person who was very successful in life. So he was doing the fence. And I said to him, how did you feel while you were doing the fence? He goes, oh, I was on top of the world. I was really enthusiastic. I was so much with energy and I was building the fence. And I said to him, that's why you fell into the alcoholism. He goes, why? Because I built the fence? I said, no, because you got proud when you, uh, you become elated, like a bit like Manic, you know, when they go up and then they go down and up and down. So he was just, he was building this fence and because he's not very successful in his life, he actually was doing something. He got so excited that he lost himself. He actually became so uh, um, elated with himself that he just then after that, the passion came. And that's what happens to us. Remember the Holy Fathers, what they say, before a fall is always pride. When we fall... It's because beforehand we were proud. Whatever we fall into in our lives, it's because we were proud. All of us, right? All of us. So that is a beautiful story there. And remember I told you a few months ago of the story of a woman which I knew from overseas in Greece. Some of you weren't there. I will repeat a little bit, even though it's on another tape. A woman whose sister, was twin sister, they weren't identical twins, but those were twins. Uh, this woman, uh, at the time, I've known her for a number of years, Christian woman, goes to church a lot. She even had a spiritual father, which was a very, very spiritual man, Father Evmenios, which, don't know if they've written books on him yet, but he was another one of those great elders of, of Greece, but very secretive. He used to work in a hospital. He had a little church on the hospital property and he used to help the sick, but he was like an unknown person, but was a very holy person. He hid himself. Or should I say, maybe he didn't even, I don't think, know anyway, A lot of times saints themselves don't think that they're saints. He was unknown. So she had that as a spiritual father. She, this woman knew a lot. And her sister suffered from mental illness for many, many years. She had been committed a number of times. She had shock treatments. She had really harsh, she was given a lot of drugs. This woman really suffered, which I met when I went to Greece a number of times. Um, she suffered a lot. And she died. And this woman had a lot of despair, the sister that was left behind about her um, sister. And I said to her, what are you despairing? She goes, oh, well, maybe if I took her to another doctor, and they could have helped her. And I go, well, what's, why? Because she could have lived. I go, and then what? What's the, she's going to live, what, for another few years, and, and then what? The point is, how did she go? How did she go? Well, how she went was that when she, while she was sick for all those years, obviously she had a lot of people praying for her. But when she got sick at the end with, um, well, I don't know what it was, some type of, what's that, um, like a flu type of, serious type of thing like that, um, she, had a, she had all these monasteries and priests, cler- clergy praying for her. And when she died, and she was in the coffin, she was bright she was she had an, a, a a light around her she was like like in other words, which is what we have to realize that a lot of people that have mental diseases actually are undergoing martyrdom it's equivalent to martyrdom, like we say oh Saint George or saint such and such they're martyrs they suffered for Christ, but people who suffer in a mental disease or any other disease, we're talking about mental now, and they suffer with their trust in God, are also martyrs and they will receive a martyr's crown. And this person was uh, completely transformed. And she actually told me that the bishop said that when he was serving, he goes, we should be praying to her, not us for her, which was quite amazing. But she kept on going on and on and on and why did she die why this and why that. See, we can be Christians, but when the trial happens, we really show if we're Christians. Remember what I said that Father Athanasios Mithilineus, which is a, a Greek archman, in, uh, he actually, I heard a tape once years ago, my mother used to listen to those tapes, and I, and I heard it as I was walking around the house, and it said, how do we know that we're Christians? Where do we show that we're Christians? We show that we're Christians during our trials during sufferings, whatever God gives us, our cross. And this woman had a cross, and the cross was that she lost her sister, that she loved a lot. That was a cross. But she couldn't come down, and why this and why that, and why this and why that. And as I said to you last time, um, I was trying to say to her that she shouldn't have those thoughts because they're really going to the point of being blasphemous, like it's just no good. But I didn't want to go, didn't want to be too harsh with her because even though I do speak to her at times, I don't know her fully and I might say something to her and do damage. But she went to an, uh, someone in Greece. She was passing by a church and she there was a certain little chapel there in Athens, which they say is a very holy person that actually serves there. So she went to the elder there, unmarried priest, and um, she... Uh, she gave him the same story she was telling me 10 times. Well, she's told me 10 times, so she went and told him. And, um, and he reacted to that. And he started shouting at her and said, you know, you, you're a blasphemer. You know, you're an apistee, up, uh, which means you are an uh, unbeliever. And he, she rings me up and she says, what do you think of that? Is that the way he should treat me? And I said to her, look, I wanted to say the same thing, but I couldn't do it. So I'm glad that he told you, because what you are doing is faithless. There's two stories there. One, for those who are left behind, but the other thing is, that girl, her sister, that died around 52 years old, never got married. She just helped in the shop with her father a little bit. She went through periods of a lot of sicknesses where she'd be hospitalised for months. Shock treatments, etc., then come out again, be a little bit better, and get sick, etc. For the last years, she was much, much better. How difficult that would be for her to actually never get married, never have children. You know, this is a big trial. And for that person to sit there and say, God's will be done, and to put all her trust in God. God gives, that's it. And she accepts it. Is that not, not a saint? See, this is where we get confused. Another story from the same elder. Once, one young man from Cyprus who wanted to become a monastic came to visit Elder Ephrem of Katunakya. And um, he often came to him, and the elder helped him as much as he could. And on one occasion, uh, he came back, but this time he had been tonsured. He had gone to a monastery, maybe. Somewhere, wherever it might have been in Cyprus, might have been somewhere else. That doesn't matter. And when the elder saw him, he was happy that he had finally got his wish and became a monk. While they were talking, the elder turned to him, and in a strict tone said to him, "Listen to me. You became a monk thanks to your little brother who is in heaven." And the young monk was astonished and shocked because. He never had any brother which died, but he didn't say anything to the elder. He didn't want to say to the elder. But elder, I have no brother. He knew, you know, don't argue, don't say anything. So he just decided, didn't say anything. Went back to his monastery. One day, his father came to visit his son at the monastery, and the son said, he took the opportunity to just work out what's going on. He goes, goes, father, do I have another brother? apart from the ones who are still alive. And the young monk was amazed what he heard. He goes, yes, we had another child who died very young, but we never told you until now. So this little story here tells us the following. A pious Orthodox Christian who has the grace of God will understand that to have lost a child and for that child to be heaven because the little children are saved, baptised, saved, it is a great honour for them because they have someone praying for them in heaven. Now, again, I can feel that some people's heads are going to burst. It just, you know, some, some of you might have lost someone some of you may have lost a child, some of you may have lost a brother and sister, so you know, or a cousin or a friend when you were very young and it's and it, you haven't really got over it, so therefore these words could be making you to become angry. And the reason why you're becoming angry, one, is because it happened to you when you were young, if it did happen, and you didn't understand it because no one was able to explain things to you, instead you saw people crying and screaming and pulling their hair and carrying on, which is really hard for young children. But as well that even older people who have lost their children, old people just so absorbed in themselves, they just a lot of times become preoccupied with that thing and they can't get out of it and it becomes a mental problem. People that have told me stories of how they came to the church and things like that, amazing stories. And, I, and they would say to me this and this happened. I go, do you have a, a relative which is a monk living or a nun? You go, no. Did you have a relative that died? No. How about a priest? No. Okay. I go, because I say to them, your story is just, it's like, it's like someone was praying for you. For all that to have happened for your family or whatever, for you to come to the church the way you did, something's happened and then I say, did you have a little brother or sister that died? I go, yes. And a lot of times that is the reason. Now, some of you might again use your logic, using rationalism and say, so what do we do? Um, Be not careful so our children can die so that they can pray for us. That's silly, as they say. Dilly. (laughs) Silly. So we don't do that, but when God takes a child, we must not go on and on and on and on and on. It's not good, and that's where you need faith. So we speak about Elder Paisios where he says that people go to social workers or people go to psychologists to get help. He goes, what have they got to offer? Someone goes and says they've just lost their child. The, the, the child died. What is the social worker going to give them? Or what's the psychologist going to give them? What are they going to give them? The, the, the catchphrase today in the hospitals are to die in dignity for those who are dying, for example. So they say, you know, to die in dignity. Whether you die in dignity or not, you're still going to die. What's the point in life? What hope has that person got? Or a person who's watching someone dying. How difficult, how difficult is that? What kind of a trial is that? That's a very, very, very difficult trial. But these people cannot give because they don't have Christ. They don't believe in anything. So they give, you know, someone just got their leg amputated. You know, they had diabetes, their, their, their toe, whatever, gangrene, they lost their leg. This person could be young, 25-year-old. What's, what's he going to do, for example? They can think. And that's why a lot of people later on commit suicide. A lot of people fall in depression. They've got to go on antidepressants because they can't. But when we have Christ and we say, no, fo- take your focus out. Stop thinking like that and know that this is not the real life. It's the next life. So why therefore are we quivering around about uh, whether we've got one leg or whether we've lost a child? Those issues, we should move them to the side and stop allowing them to make us sick or blasphemous. Stop trying to work everything out with your mind. But we need grace to do that. So we're coming to our halfway break. Are there any questions? Which I'm sure some of you have. Vladimir. Um, <clears throat> complaining the same as judging. Complaining about is judging the No complaining <laughs> but they they can the the question is is that what you want to say? The question is is complaining the same as judging? Well, they can cross over. If you're if you've got, say, uh, someone who you are complaining about because they, like your child, the child doesn't listen. So you begin to complain and say, my child's not listening, but at the same time, that could be sprinkled with the judging by saying that the, you know, the child's bad or something's wrong with it or you become negative towards it, or you might say, why I wasn't like that, or why is he like that, or why aren't others like that, or things like that, so they can cross over. Uh, but in general, a complaint is a complaint, and it's a sin. And judging is a is a sin as well. So I'm not sure if that's what you mean. Did you is that what you're trying to say, or did I miss your point, no, no, no. which I often do? Sorry. Like, well, by reverse, ah, uh, by rev- <laughs> I, I think I gave you an example of um, when you were here last uh, many moons ago, where we said. Uh, when, uh, when I started teaching, I wasn't in the church. So for the first three, four years, I wasn't in the church. But then later on, I came to the church. And now I had to deal with these students in a completely different way. Well, before I dealt with them in one way, I didn't really believe anything, so I, I dealt with them in the whatever. And now I would say I'm not allowed to hate them even though if they're really bad, I'm not allowed to judge them. I started to have all these problems which I wasn't used to because it was a whole new world to me. And, um, and it was easy to start judging them and say, oh, they've probably got unbelieving parents or they've got demons or they've got this, they've got whatever, whatever. you know, you can think stupidity is there. But later on, when you start to work on yourself, when you start to struggle with your own passions, with your own, sicknesses, then you begin to kind of close off from people around and you just kind of... Those people don't make much of an impact on you to actually get bothered with them or to be... Actually, you say to yourself, well, if they were given the grace of God, maybe they would use it better than what we are using it that's been given God's grace, where a lot of times we're slack and we don't care. So what I'm saying is when you reverse it on yourself... When you start struggling, complaining and judging start slowly, slowly to go away. And hence, we read in the elders where the elder had a bag of rocks, you know, like in a bag, he had some rocks on his, I've forgotten how it was, it It was um, a big bag of rocks in the front of him. He was, and, a, and at the back, he had a small bag of rocks, or something like that. I can't remember. Probably, but he was, Anyway, they asked him, Why are you doing that? He goes, The big rocks are my sins, and the small rocks, uh, the sins of my brothers, which are, should be insignificant because we should be preoccupied with ourselves. So, the more we start leading a spiritual life, then we will notice that we will be so involved with our sins, then we become like the publican who, where he went to the temple and he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. We have to get to that stage whereby we are constantly looking at our own sins, not in a depressed way, but in a hopeful way. We hope in God's forgiveness and salvation, and that way we don't look at others. So spiritual life is the answer. Does that, does that answer your question? Is that what you want to ask? Is there anything else? Any other? That was a good question. I think the first one I didn't answer properly, but anyway. Yes, anything else? Any other like, questions? questions are good because I might say something which might not be correct. Well, I didn't explain myself, I didn't elaborate, yes. Uh, In relation to the Apostle Paul speaking for his times, does that mean we don't take it anymore? We don't read anymore because it's not for our times? No, certain... No, actually it is in our times because by reading that and seeing how he was very careful dealing with that particular thing of slavery in his times, that helps us to actually understand how we should treat people, how we should look at situations in our times, which are, you know, controversial topics. Elder Porfirio says, for example, when people would come to him, young people, he knew that they were having sex with each other and things full on, he knew that they were doing that. And he says they used to come really horribly dressed. And he, you know, if we lived, say, in the couple of maybe 100 years before, the priest would tell them off, scold them really badly, which they had the right to do. Because in those in the previous centuries, people were more understanding of what is the correct way to live. But he said, today, people don't know. They don't even know, for example, like I said about that guy that came that I was dealing with, he didn't understand that's, that you don't have sex outside, he, doesn't, he really did not think it was a sin. So therefore, if someone doesn't know something is a sin, how can you then treat them in the same way as say someone who's been in the church for many years and knows and read? When when someone comes to me and says that, and they've been in the church, I'll be more, I'll be more, a bit more, build up, build up. But I could become quite harsh with that person, really harsh, but with but with, with the purpose of helping them, not with hate. But you can, sometimes you can be harsh, like you are with your children. You scold them. Not that you actually hate the child, but you love the child, but you're using certain procedures to try and help. There's all different ways. Some people need to be scolded, need to be told off. Some people you have to speak to more gently. There's all different ways. But the point is that you can't be super strict with people who don't know. For example, someone comes to me and goes, we're going to have a wedding. And in my wedding, we're going to have uh, all the bridesmaids with really low cuts and everything, all their back shown and the guys are going to be wearing, I don't know, fairy floss on their heads, that that's how it's gone that's how it's gone now, it's gone to the point you mean, some of you watched that thing on uh, Current Affairs, whatever, of that Greek Orthodox wedding which was, it was um, the most embarrassing, embarrassing thing for the church uh, the, um, the woman came in with a of uh of a bride's dress and, and had a really low cut and things like that, and it was all a, a joke. Now, someone comes up to me and says, is that wrong? Then I would say to them, uh, yes, you know, you've got to be proper when you go to the... But then they'd say to me, but how come when I went to that wedding, the priest was there and he said nothing, you see? And then they go, "And another wedding, the priest said nothing. At another wedding, um, they came up with motorbikes or hot rods, right? Or bikes were there. And then you have all these, all these um, uh, different things and you say to yourself, well, how am I going to become harsh? They're going to think I'm mad. So you've got to be really careful with how you approach because society has changed a lot, then you can, can appear to be fanatical when you're saying the right thing. So you've got to be careful the way you do it. So St. Paul's example of the slavery was a fantastic example, just like his examples about women where he says that women should be owning control of the house. But yet society's changed now and we see that women are doing more. But the point is there is that he could not go against a culture that was there for, for hundreds of years. He had to be careful because then he makes people not to come to the church over issues which aren't really dogmatic and aren't really that important. And slowly, slowly, you know, it took um, eight centuries for a woman to become um, the empress, which is Irene, who was the first woman empress of the Byzantine Empire. I mean, that took so many, well, from, from the time that King Constantine came, which is the fourth century, another three or four centuries until she became the first one. And people were going, oh, no, she can't be the empress because people didn't understand the mentality. So we do have to understand that this is pastoral, not dogmatic. It's pastoral issues. Like someone says, oh, I'm taking contraception. Is that bad? Then you've got to realise that, number one, the whole of society tells them it's not bad. Number two, they've read a lot of magazines. And number three, there could be even clergy who are for it. So you've got to be very, very careful how you present it so as not to make the person become scared of you and think that you're, you know, like a beast or something. You've got to be very, very careful of how you approach the matter. So, no, we don't ignore St Paul's approaches. But there are issues there about circumcision. There was a whole... There's chapters devoted to circumcision, whether you circumcise a male or not when he he comes to the church, if they're pagans. Um, That's not an issue now. So why? So if we go along to what you're trying to say, which is not you're not being rude, but if we go along with what you're trying to say, there is we can say: Do we reject or chuck chuck out that whole part of the Bible because it's not an issue anymore? See, no. But we look at how did they deal with that issue on circumcision? How they all got together, and how one of the apostles, I think it was Saint Peter, was saying if I remember, I hope I'm not wrong, but I think St. Peter was saying, yes, they should be circumcised, and the other apostles ignored him and then later on decided, no, it's not necessary to be circumcised. So we learn, we don't, we don't reject any parts of the Bible. Uh, that's it. Andrew, no questions? Yes? You talked about That's because of us. So your question is, it says in the end times that you read that in the end times that society will be off and you know, you know people won't love each other, there'll be no respect, there'll be no this, there'll be no that. Yes, that is what happened due to, that's what's happening due to the fact that we are moving away from Christ. Vladika Averki of Jordanville, Russian Hierarch, he said the following, which is really good. The apostasy is going to happen. People are going to fall away. The world is obviously going to get at times really bad and things like that. Don't try and stop the apostasy, because you can't stop it if that's that's the way it's going to go. Sometimes it goes worse, sometimes better, etc. But in general, we know from the prophecies that the world will apostasize from God. Now, are we living in those times now? I don't know, because I'm not a prophet, you see. So what happens is it goes, it goes like that. But he says, don't try and stop the apostasy, because you can't. Save yourself and save whoever you can around you. The more we struggle with, us, with our passions, the more we become uh, spiritual, the more we help others. But we can't stop the apostasy. I don't think, for example doesn't matter how holy one can be that we're going to stop uh, this pornography that's going on now. But we can teach people and help people to avoid it. So a person who's in a hopeless situation would go, oh, you can't stop it, you can't stop it, it just become really hopeless. But that's not how the saints looked at it. The saints said, we will pray. And when the saints prayed when the priest serves divine liturgy every day, or where there's liturgies every day, then the grace which comes from the prayers of the saints, from the monks, the nuns, from the Christians, from the liturgies, etc., from the parakleses, like we did tonight, all those prayers are helping people. So in other words, if there was another, let's just say, 4,000 recruits to go into the world of pornography, that's the potential, through the prayers of the church, there might be only 3,000 that actually, because they're enlightened. When monasteries pray, they pray for those on drugs. How many people have been enlightened? How many people could have died? How many people have, um, have got off it? We think, oh, they got off it and it just happened. No, it's from the prayers. It's from the church's prayers for the world, especially from the monasteries. You heard about that girl that was enslaved by uh, the father for 25 years, whatever it was, and all those things that happened in in Austria, was it? Yep. And people were disgusted and this and that. And obviously you must be. But the point is there is that she escaped. How do we know that that's not from the prayers of the morning? I I believe that it is from that. A lot of disasters. You might say, oh, but some disasters still happen. It happens because God wants them to happen. But there are other disasters that are averted, that are stopped due to prayers of Christians, due to the prayers of the church. And that's why the homework that I was going to say before, I don't know, did I actually say the homework? What the homework is that every day pick a certain group of people and pray for them. One night pray for those on drugs. Another night pray for those young people who are, Or people who are fornicating and don't even think about that it's bad, etc. Another night, pray for those who are committing adultery or are thinking of committing adultery. Another night, pray for those who are mentally ill. Another night, pray for those who are dying at this moment or in the next few days, asking God to help them in their most difficult time. Another night, you can pray for those who are grieving, those who have lost something, or those who are undergoing some catastrophe. Pray another night for the soldiers who are in war and how difficult that must be. You know, some of them are like how scared they are. And you know, and some of them that have been hurt. Pray for their families. Pray for this. Pray for that. There's so much to pray. But when we're too busy being absorbed with ourselves, we're not going to come out. You have to, we have to come out of ourselves and start to pray for others. And once you get into the habit of that, then you uh, start to calm down. You no longer start thinking about, oh, there's so many drug addicts. Oh, there's so many of that. Because prayer is very powerful and there are so many miracles that occur. We can do a, a prayer. If it comes from the heart, if a person prays from the heart, even a small prayer and go, oh, those poor people that are on drugs and they do, they, they, they do the cross, that's all it is, they do the cross and say, oh, God, you know, help them, help them to come off that because some of them can't come off it. It's very hard. And that comes from the heart. And that's it. We don't know that that prayer, how much effect it's had on how many people. It's all hidden so we don't get proud. But on the last day, we will know. We will know exactly what's happened. Whether we've done bad, or whether we've done good, it will be all exposed on the last day. All those sighs that came from our heart, with love for other people, felt sorry for them and wished them to be, you know, the best, they are recorded and they will be presented on the last day. But also, if we had in our hearts bad things, I wish that person loses their job or I hate that person or jealousies or whatever, all those will be also recorded. So all these things are part of spiritual life. Break for about ten minutes now. Because some of you are fasting, we have this dilemma um, with the calendar. So we have uh, the things which are Lenten. that mean, Lenten—that's uh, fasting—and other things that have—they haven't got that sign. Is not fasting. The orange juice doesn't have a fa- uh, doesn't have a sign. But today, it's got to the stage where even that's got milk in it. But uh, this orange juice doesn't have milk in it, right? So those who are fasting are welcome to that. Okay. No, to have that. Break. Ready to start? Um, Before we go on, I want to read a few more of these sections of Elder Paisios on this topic. And he says, the goal of reading is the application in our lives of what we read. Now, that's very, very important. And unfortunately, a lot of people who used to, as worldly people, read a lot, When they come to the church, they carry on that same spirit. So say, for example, someone loved reading history or someone just reading novels or whatever, then they come to the church because they they love reading, they continue that mentality, which is wrong, and not understand that when you read history, it's interesting, there's nothing wrong with reading history. When you read some other books, they're not books that you actually apply, it's You're reading it. But with the orthodox books, they're meant to be applied. So the goal, he says, in reading orthodox books is to apply what we read, not to read in a theoretical way that is wrong. He says not to learn it by heart, but to take it to heart. So a lot of people to show off, I know I've been been there where... You know, when you first come into the church, a lot of times you read things, and that we read the, we read these books, and then we kind of memorize them. Some people have got better memories than others, and especially if some people have got, in a way, strong memories, they can repeat what they've read, and people can be amazed at what they. Oh, you know, you know so much, and you do this, you do that. But the point is, that that can be a disadvantage. And it can become really dangerous for the person to fall into diabolical pride. Now, we have read in the elders, in the Holy Fathers, that some of them actually used to memorise by heart the Gospels. Some of them used to memorise by heart the Psalter. But they were very progressed people. As I said to you last time, I don't even know, a lot of times uh, different lives I get confused with uh, certain facts. Like last week, I made, last month I made a mistake even with Saint Spiriton, even though I've been doing talks for around 20 years, for many years I used to give that example of the tile. It just slipped my mind. It didn't bother me because that's okay. There's no need to memorise everything. Why do you have to memorise them? Not to practise using our tongues but to be able to receive the tongues of fire and to live the mysteries of God. The important thing is to live a Christian life from the books to learn from the books. This is one which is very important. If one studies a great deal in order to acquire knowledge and to teach others, without living the things he teaches, he does no more than fill his head with hot air. So that is very powerful, very important. I remember this husband was saying that his wife would buy uh, gardening books and cooking books. And um, she had a a large amount of cooking books and a large amount of gardening books, for example. And he said to me, she's got all these books. And every time she sees a new one, she buys one. And yet, we don't even get a meal out of all these books that she's read. (laughs) And the garden is full of weeds. Ah. So she's full of hot air. Now, the same with people who, buy, who read spiritual books, can read, 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 even come to talks and listen, 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 listen. If you're not applying it, actually, it's dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. At most, he will manage to ascend the moon using machines. Yes, if you read things, but the goal of a Christian is to rise to God without machines. So another section here on theology now. Theology that is taught as a worldly science, because a lot of theology, as I said before, in the universities, is taught in a worldly way. Like historically, theoretically, I don't know what they do there. And they examine things, here it says, usually examines things historically and consequently understands things externally. So someone can be a theologian, someone can have studied theology for four or five years, someone can even have a PhD, but they only know it externally. They have not entered at all into the spiritual life. So it's worthless, actually dangerous. Once someone came here, and I knew he he would only last once, but anyway, he came here and uh, he was very agitated during the talk. And he was going like this, and you know, like so. Everything I was saying, he was going like that. And I don't know what was wrong, but every second he was going like that, like that, like that, moving around, moving his head. I thought that maybe he used to have a job at Luna Park, or that the only thing that, <laughs> the only thing that was missing was that he didn't have his mouth open. But if he had his mouth open, then for sure I would say, Do you work at Luna Park? So. He kept on going like that and very agitated and uh, and usually people when they come, they can be, be, you know, bewildered when they're new, that's okay, but this person didn't like the spirit anyway and at the end, isn't it funny that uh, out of everyone that's come here, a lot of people that are interested, that would have to be the worst and by coincidence he didn't work at Luna Park, he actually studied theology. He was a student or a graduate of theology. Does that mean they're all like that? No, but the majority are. Um, Because patristic asceticism and inexperience are absent, this theology is full of doubts and questions. In other words, when you study spiritual books, whether at school, whether at theological level or at home, whatever, or listening to talks. If we are not at the same time leading an ascetical life, that doesn't mean going out into the desert. It doesn't mean to eat bread and water. Ascetical life, it means leading a life of spiritual struggle. But if repentance in whatever we do is missing, then it's a disaster. A repentance is the basis of everything. Now, some of you who have dealt with building of houses or seen houses being built, they have to have what's called foundations. You don't just put a slab like that. They have to have foundations all around in the middle, which is very thick, with reinforced with metal, so that the house can sit on. And if you don't have foundations, it will fall in. Like those foundations for a slab or whatever that's the same in in an Orthodox um, using an, an, an analogy is repentance so people say they read the Jesus the the book on the Jesus Prayer which is that book um, the way of the pilgrim whatever and they read it and they say that they start to practice the Jesus Prayer and others read other things and they try to put other things into practice or whatever and not understanding that unless we have a basis of repentance in our life, then everything is dangerous, it's off, diabolical. Some people say, oh, I want to live a life that's more spiritual. Some even, even some married couples can say, oh, we want to abstain because we read the lives of saints where they abstain from sexual relations and we want to do that. But there's no repentance hardly in their lives at all. There's no spiritual life. Without repentance in our lives then there is no spiritual life. And that's why I've purchased quite a few books up there on repentance. That book Return, another book there on repentance. The basis of spiritual life is repentance. In the book at the back, which is called The Spiritual Father, they say that some people go and they want to find a spiritual father which can read thoughts or say your name and things like that. And the person that wrote that book says, the most important thing is to find a spiritual father who will inspire you and help you to come to a deeper repentance. That is the purpose of life. What's the first thing that Christ said? Repent. What's the first thing that St. John the Baptist says? Repent. What's the message of the Christians is repent. Through repentance, we begin spiritual life. Without it, forget it. And that's where people are going wrong today. With his mind, the theologian is not able to comprehend the divine energies, which are going to be deep, unless he first struggles ascetically to live these energies so the grace of God might work within him. Just to make it simple, without the ascetical life, which I'm going to go for a whole list of that in a minute, we cannot experience God's grace. And the ascetical life, its basis is repentance, not doing big fasts not, or not even doing big prayers unless it's based on repentance. So people say to me, oh, I want to do a lot of prayers. How about repentance? Oh, I want to do a lot of fasting. I want to study theology. I want to become a monk. I want to become a nun or whatever, but the thing is, whatever we try to do spiritually, we have to have repentance. And we have to speak more about that as time goes on, because that's the most important thing. Also now we come into something which will be very which which will be um a bit ouch for some. Also those clerics who study psychology so as to help souls using human contrivances, meaning human methods are not spiritually well. Now, that's a bit of an ouch, isn't it? Why do I say that? Because today, more and more, priests they have a lot of knowledge of psychology and they are using psychology in confession. So, I was speaking to someone just the other day. Sorry for laughing, and he said to me that um, he went to um, he took a friend of his to the priest to um, confess, and the priest uh, and he said to the he, the, 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 the young fellow, well, I don't know, maybe forty years old, I don't know what he was, but he said he said to the priest that um, he's got certain problems, certain social problems, certain anxieties, and his advice was go to see a psychologist. Straight away. The guy who took him was told to go and see a psychologist from years ago and he's been he's been sent a psychologist. So today, either the priests will play the psychologist or send someone to a psychologist. Some people need help, especially if they're in danger. Elder Pacer says that. Some people need to be medicated, etc. But you know, we're gonna go to a psychologist because why? because someone washes his hands too many times a day. and That is serious, but with the spiritual life, a lot of times that thing calms down. Or some people have thoughts, and then the priest says, oh, thoughts, they're really obsessive. Sounds like you've got OCD, psychologist. Someone the other day said to me, they went to a talk. Could be Greek, could be Antiochian, could be Russian, doesn't matter. And the priest was speaking about a certain topic, and this person said to me, he goes, I thought I was at a psychology lecture. And the person was yapping there and going on and on and on about marriage or something, of relationships, and he goes, it was all using psychological terms. Why do, we need, why do we need that for? How much do I speak about psychology? Oh, sorry, I do, to, to, to put it down. But apart from that... Um, <laughs> But put it down to a certain level. We can't, because even they have, they've got some truths to a certain level. Elder Paisios, I think it was, says, how do they, how do they go to, and learn and psychology or, or when, when he said when these teachers who are teaching psychology don't even believe in the soul? They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in demons. They don't believe in anything like that. Or if they do believe, they believe it in their own way. Oh, I think that's coming anyway. Oh, here it is. Also those clerics who study psychology just to help souls using human methods are not spiritually well. So Elder Paisus is calling those people sick. If I said it, then people would get upset because they say you're judging. But I'm hiding behind the Elder. See? (laughs) I'm still, I am still believe it, but it's like there's the elder and I'm behind him. Don't tell me off, tell him off. The strange thing is, he continues, is that their teachers of psychology don't believe in God or the existence of the soul. If they accept the soul's existence, they do it in their own unique way, whatever way they fabricate in their heads. In this way, these clerics who do this are spiritually sick and they need to be examined by the Holy Fathers. It's like a bit of a joke, see? You need to be you know, say, oh, you're sick. You need to be examined by a doctor. So the other says, he's saying, you know, if you're doing that, you're sick and you need to be examined by the doctors of the church, the doctors of the our true theologians, true our, the Holy Fathers. Having been healed, they would be able to discern on their own the sick spirit, and would experience divine grace at the same time. Thus, from the time forth, they would use the divine energy for those suffering souls and not human contrivances. When someone comes to confession, this is a meeting between a soul and God in the presence of the priest. This is where grace works, not psychology It's blasphemous, it's demonic, and it is one of the greatest destructions of the Orthodox Church today, the infiltration of psychology into church life. Everything psychology. As Father Alexander said... um, when he came a few months ago, I don't know if he said it to me, I don't know if he said it public or to me, when he was saying that, uh, and plus they all say it, that, um, and I've, I've experienced it as well, someone comes to confession and then as they're speaking then you think, okay, um, I'm going to help this person, and of you know, God's help, I'm going to say this, this and this. Suddenly, when you go to say it, out of your mouth comes a completely different thing completely different thing and to your surprise what's being said is so overwhelming it's true there's insight a lot of times to it there's enlightenment there you might be even saying things to the person that the person it hits them in the heart it helps them and at that time God's grace is working if the priest is using psychology where would the grace work? How would the grace work with, with a priest that's using psychology? Oh, Father, I've got, I've got a lot of thoughts. And then the priest takes out his MIMS. I think, I think it's called MIMS, is it? Where's the pharmacist? MIMS, is it? That's the medical, there's all the medication. Thoughts, let's look it up. Compulsive thoughts, Anafrenal. that's one of them. Okay. Another person says, Father, I had an imagination the other day. What was that? I thought to myself that um, it, was just a, it was a passing thought, yes. I thought that I was an ascetic. I imagined that I was an ascetic. Really? Just look at my mims again. Okay, antipsychotic, cyprexa. Right? Now, get a psychiatrist and get him to, to, to give you that thing. We all have imagination. We all have thoughts. It depends on how bad it it gets where the person loses reality. But all of us have fantasy. That's what the spiritual life is about, is to to control our fantasy, to acknowledge our fantasy. If I sit down and go through all the fantasy that I've got, some of you will actually uh, get Dr. Phil to come down and (laughs) take me away in a white jacket or something. But the point is that that does not mean that we are needful of these things. But when you go to a priest who has knowledge and a priest who uh, leads a spiritual life, a priest who is struggling himself and a priest who has God as above and not psychology as being above everything, Will understand and will be able to help. Did that ouch a bit today? If because if it did, it was what I was hoping to do. There are people who have studied psychology, very few, or who have gone through theological schools, who are very spiritual. Saint Nectarius, the Greek saint, studied theology. Actually, I think he was the first canonised saint of Greece to have a formal theological degree. But the difference there is that Saint Nectarius was a saint from young and he was a very holy person. He was not affected. I've met other people who have studied uh, uh, theology and, and things like that and even some psychology if they had to as part of their degree. But they lead spiritual lives. That's the, um, that's the thing. Now, my list that I, I put together for you. Types of asceticism that can be practised in the world. Now, some people, as I said, we, um, we think that after reading books incorrectly, that we think that the only ones that can lead spiritual lives are people that are in the desert, people in monasteries, for example, or something like that. We have this idea that you can't really lead a spiritual life in the world. So we're applying logic and reason. In other words, we try to rationalize. And the demons come and help with that as well. And they say, oh, no, that can't be done, that can't be done. Can't lead a spiritual life in today's world, it's too hard. Got children and this and that. And I put a list together, um, with God's help, to actually show you that. There are opportunities to lead a spiritual life and we don't even know it because we're too busy chasing something that's not ours. I use it using mathematics since that was my past. A person comes, I think I've said this before, at the end of year 10, for example, and they say, oh, I'm going to choose maths for next year for senior school, for HSC, high school certificate. I go, yes. And what would you like to do? They go, I want to do... In, you know, three-unit, I don't know if you understand what that means, but it's a high-level maths. But they were doing general maths. In other words, they barely could do equations. And they're going to do three-unit. Now, that person obviously is in a true delusion, right? And you can't allow that because you won't be able to do it. You just don't have it. So he's chasing something that he can't do. He's better off to do a lower level and at least learn something. It's the same in spiritual life, unfortunately. Everyone wants to go to the high things, to visions or to great ascetical feats or to have discernment or whatever, but no one wants to actually lead a life at their level. And for the majority of people today, the level is simple life, basic spiritual life, and then to start to practise the commandments. I'll go through a few things. Praying just a little bit, even just a bit of prayer every day. We've said this before. Elder Ephraim, I think, said, of katunakia he said about someone who was um, living in the world, and he says, if you just even say, a couple of Lord have mercies, that can be equivalent to us who pray all night. If it comes from your heart, and obviously we can't do the life that they do. But... God does not look at quantity, but he looks at the quality. And he also looks at whether it's consistent. And he says, just do it. The saints say, a little bit, but constantly. So if your prayer rule is three or four prostrations and a couple of prayers every day consistently, then that is a spiritual life. That's an ascetical life. But people want to say, oh no, I want to start with a hundred prostrations, I want to do this, I want to do read prayers, I want to. It's too much. It won't be able to keep it up. And then you at the end, you just flop, and that's the end of it. little bit, but constantly. Reading the Bible. A relative of mine just came to the church and he said, I've started on the Old Testament. I said, don't do that. Don't start on the Old Testament. Just read the Gospels first. He goes, no, i am got to start from the beginning of the Bible. I don't know, he probably got up to Exodus and that was about it after he saw that Moses threw the Ten Commandments and he saw other things that that was happening there, a lot of things that people don't understand. Well, why don't you just listen? No, they want to do it their way. little bit of the Bible, even if you take the Bible, even if it's reading this, every day we read even that, that amount, which is about a couple of little paragraphs, every day. That's an ascetical life, believe it or not. Today it's very difficult to do those things because of the distractions. After you've been on the internet all night or after you've watched some movies, usually two, three, four, five, and um, uh, it's very hard to bring the mind to. So someone who forces themselves and wants to is actually struggling and is doing a spiritual life. I've, I've noted that people actually at the beginning they might go to confession and Holy Communion and I've noticed lately that people less and less are doing those things. They, they don't go hardly to communion anymore because it's like t- too difficult for them to prepare supposedly because there's too much distraction. So if someone's able to commune often as long as they live in a spiritual life then that's also an ascetical. That's, that's also what's called ascesis, asceticism. Now let's go to some other ones. Enduring a sickness with patience, that's asceticism. You see, ascetics, they put the pain on themselves by sleeping on the floor or staying out in the cold or allowing the sun to hit them. They put that on themselves. Well, what happens for us that live in the world, God gives us according to what's good for us. And one of it could be sickness. It's still suffering. And if you suffer with, with patience and faith in God, then, and, and especially if you know you're going to be dying, and you start going through all your thoughts of saying, why, why is this, why that, why has God allowed this? And you have some doubts and blasphemies come along and all these things, and a person's struggling with that. A person's asking for prayers. Pray for me. I've got um, unbelief. I'm starting to become negative towards God. That's the same as what the ascetics went through. They started having blasphemous thoughts that God doesn't exist. We read all those things and we go, oh, well, for me to go through those trials, I have to go to the desert. You don't have to go to the desert. So that's another thing of uh, enduring a sickness with patience and also if you know, you, you know that your sickness is towards death. Enduring a death of a parent, a child, a sibling, friend, relative, etc. Just or or even, yeah, so even a person who is experiencing the loss of someone that that woman oversees and she was suffering. She was going through horrible temptations of unbelief, etc., so, you've got to bring your thoughts back. You've got to rekindle. We have to rekindle our faith and say, God, help me, uh, free me from these blasphemy thoughts, or free me from unbelief, or free me from complaint. Help me to have faith, etc. Just like the saints that were being tormented uh, in the dungeons or in jail or something, or they're, on the, they're in the stocks or on the cross if they were being tortured, and then at the time, what do you think that some people think, oh, they had lied and they were doing miracles and they were full of grace and things like that. A lot of times when you read the lives of Saints closely, you'll see that they suffered and they used to go through times of unbelief. Then the devil would appear to them as an angel and say to them that you're going to, or if he doesn't come as an angel, he'll come to them as a thought and say, you know, it's all for nothing. If God is love, why is he allowing you to suffer? Deny, do this, do that. We don't have to be put on a cross. We don't have to be uh, tortured. We don't have to be in a country in which we're being persecuted. We can have it right here in our everyday life. And that's one example. Enduring a mental illness, we went through that before, of oneself or a close one. A woman once... Uh, she, she married very young and her husband, I don't know, somehow, I was very young at the time, but I remember the story and he lost it. He lost it. And um, they caught him outside. He was running up and down the street. He just lost his mind. They wanted to send him to Greece, get rid of him. And I remember, even when I was young, that my father said, don't do that. Don't do that. That's not good. And they didn't want him. She didn't want him, or the relative and her relatives didn't want him because he was mentally ill. So they shipped him off to Greece, got rid of him. And she had to bring up her children without a father. But what happened was that the father got better and remarried after he was thrown away and was leading a normal life. So that's a bit of a problem. And Another example, which is a very powerful example, is that there was a couple, and they were leading a spiritual life together, married, and one of them, I think the husband, got sick, really, really sick, and his sickness resulted in him becoming very aggressive towards the spouse, punching walls, hitting her hit, just being really aggressive, out of control. The woman, contrary to Oprah's advice and all these other crows that come along and say, um, oh, under no condition must this and woman and this and that, whatever. But even though, women also use frying pans. And (laughs) and and if they don't use physical, women don't need to use physical. One, because they don't have it, they use different techniques. It's called sarcasm. It's called manipulation. A woman can make a man commit suicide very easily. But that's not registered. All that's registered is that uh, all these percentages and statistics, are of course there is violence against women from, from men, but it's not exactly like that. When I first learned to drive, a person volunteered, a relative to let me drive the car, and his wife would come, and children, two children. So they would sit at the back. So I'd drive, and the driver was there. And every so often, the woman would hit her husband on the head, calling him names for anything, for anything. Stupid, idiot, you're this, you're that. And while I was driving, which was hard enough because I was learning... I saw other fists coming from the back. It was the children. They used to do the same. They used to hit him and the man used to take it. What's he going to do? Go to the police and say, my wife hits me. (laughs) So, you know, that's, uh, that's physical. One day, I came home. And what do I see on the ground? A woman bleeding. Her nose was bleeding. He punched her or something. According to today's laws, that's unforgivable. That's the worst sacrilege and that that person should be, what, executed for beheading because that's the way basically it's got to the stage. That's sarcasm, but that's how bad it is. But what's happening before doesn't matter. I found out about some people who got involved with some social workers and the woman said that the man pushed her and then the social workers became oh really goes oh that's that 's abuse that's abuse that's really 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 bad right so I said to the man, i said i just mentioned to them when, when you see them that um, uh, your wife uh, uh, drops the babies often she drops because she 's slack she just drops the babies the uh, And ended up, you know, anyway. And then you know what um, the social worker said? She must be tired. She must be tired. See? Double standards. That's what's happening today. Anyway, so somehow I got off the um, track there and I don't remember where I was on. Does anyone remember? Doesn't matter anyway. But that's the... that's Sorry? Oh well that guy was an ascetic. The one that used to have the lumps on his back of his head, he was an ascetic. He didn't have to he didn't have to go and get stoned. He was he was suffering. Ah, so thank you. Christine, isn't it? Yeah. So what happened was that that couple was I was saying about that uh, the the man was aggressive, used to hit, used to become really he just lost himself. Something was wrong with him. And the woman, Christian, orthodox, she endured. She said something was wrong. But the difference is, is that the man would often go back and ask forgiveness. Now, according to Oprah and her cohorts, they all say, oh, they do that, they say forgiveness. Some manipulators and some people will use the forgiveness as a way to justify, but they're not sorry. This person was Sorry. There was something wrong with this person, but according to them, there's no excuse. Anyway, so she should have been advised, according to them, is to leave him. That's it. Because because Queen Oprah says, if they hit you once, they'll always hit you. Later on, it was discovered that that person had an issue of some type of... I don't know what it was exactly, some uh, hormonal problem which was affecting his mind, not that the mind was actually sick in itself, but it was a physical problem which was affecting the mind. Once that person was given not psychiatric medication, some other medication to rectify whatever was the imbalance, that person stopped. Now imagine if that woman left or vice versa, when a woman gets sick and then the man leaves. The main thing here was the person was truly sorry. Now, there are other abusers that will pretend that they're sorry, but he was truly sorry. That's where her patience won out. She received great fruits, but he received also fruits, and he will always be indebted because she didn't run out. Etc., etc. So there's a lot from, from there. Bringing up children is an asceticism. I've said this before just feeding them today, just clothing them, cleaning them, bathing them, helping them, listening to the cries, getting up in the night. Why does someone have to go and stand out in the sun or go up on a pillar or on a tree like the ascetics used to do? Or go down to the Geelongan caves when it's below zero? with a psalter and a prayer rope and imitate the great saints. Why is it necessary? When you've got, when you've got the chance of asceticism, as we say in Greek, when you've got the chance of asceticism, there, right there, right in your home. And that is really difficult. Especially today, a lot of men and women do find it difficult to bring up children because of society, social reasons, mental issues, emotional issues. People do find it hard. So I've noticed that a lot of people find it excruciating even to be able to get the food on the table for their children. It's it's so difficult for them. It's like they're spitting blood, a lot of them. Why do you think women prefer to go and work? Because they want to work. Because it's easier. And that's the truth. Some of them are forced because of financial reasons. But in general, I've heard so many people say, I don't have to work, but I can't stay home with them. That is a great ascetic deed now today. So remember that God doesn't look at a woman of, say, many years ago or in some countries where they're stronger who does that. It's easier for them. But a woman or a man of today who are trying to bring up children when they don't have the proper... um, equipment and the proper makeup in themselves, it's really, really difficult. And then when they actually are trying to bring up the children and they fail continually, then you try to teach them, as I've said in the past, to pray and ask God to help them, ask God to quiet down their children, because they've already tried, they've failed, they can't do it, this or that. This is all asceticism. We forget about all that. We think, no, no, it's not asceticism. St. David of Thessalonica, he lived in a tree. St. Simeon the Stylite stood on a column and he was up there day and night. Or there's others that used to strap themselves up on ropes and hold themselves up so they don't fall asleep. You don't have to tie yourself up. Have a couple of children, you'll never sleep. (laughs) You don't need to tie yourself up with rope because you read it. As someone used to say, a couple of childbirths will, will, one woman used to say to someone, a couple of childbirths will humble you. The person was single, she was married, she had a few kids, and the other person was, you know, proudful and judging and things like that, and she would say, a couple of childbirths will, will, um, will humble you, and the same with the man as well. Enduring a person who has an addiction in the family, whether it's a child, a husband, a wife. And there's a lot of addictions to that now. Gambling, alcohol, drugs, that is really, really difficult. To see the person, to see the person just destroying themselves and to sit there and to watch that and to be patient and to try and endure that and to pray about it. All that is asceticism at its highest. But no, we don't look at that like that. People that are addicted, uh, um, especially that alcohol and drugs because it affects their body, but even the gambling, they just lose their mind. They don't care, they don't care if the children are starving. I've dealt with people like that, they don't care. The children haven't got food, doesn't bother them. And a woman has to, like how how she deals with it, or vice versa. I was dealing with one guy whose wife was not only alcoholic, where she didn't think she was an alcoholic, but she's also um, on drugs. Marijuana every single day. And she says, There's nothing wrong with me. Abuse, adjuring abuse from a husband or wife, from parents, from children. Your own parents, for example, could be abusive. Your own wife, your husband, we already went through all that. That's that's, that's an asceticism. There are some who, who left. I read the other day in Elder Philothos um, where he said in there a letter to someone he's, and the man was trying to get his wife to have an abortion and she was saying no, whatever. She went to him for advice and he said to her, tell him that, you, that it's a sin and that you're not going to do it. If he persists, then go to the bishop or priest, priest, bishop, and then if he doesn't listen, divorce him. So that's an extreme... But there are other issues where you can try to endure and use the church's principles in life, like praying, etc., to help you to get over that and help the other person. But also it helps you. I've noticed that people who... Say a person's got a, a someone who's not a very good husband or wife. Let's just say a, a, a husband. He comes and he says, I can't take her she doesn't do this, she doesn't know she's really bad, she doesn't listen, she's abusive, she's whatever, 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 whatever. And you can say to him, well, you know, this is given to you by God. This is your chance to use what you've learned in the spiritual life, put it into practice. This will teach you patience. This will teach you forgiveness. This will teach you to pray. This will teach you so much. And the person like, no, I can't take it. So the person leaves. He, in other words... He throws away his cross. And then he goes to a life free of those things. What happens then? God gives them those people a cross worse than what they had before. See, today's society is no suffering, no suffering, no suffering. And we miss out on the opportunities to practice spiritual lives, true spiritual life. Not we there and we go to church and, you know, we like um. Those little birds that go down and up and down—you know what I mean? Those automatic things, or since we're on the bird topic, people stand so stiff that it's like they're waiting for a pigeon to come and land on them because they're so—they don't—they're not moving, and they think that's the spiritual life. That's the spiritual life. A couple of prostrations, whatever. That's not the spiritual life. Spiritual life comes from everyday life, from everyday problems, from the sufferings, from the cross that Christ gives us. Then we begin to learn spiritual life. That's your question, Vladimir, where you said books on spiritual life is in a way, it's good what you're saying, but I think a bit, but I'm only using this as an example to help people, off the mark. Spiritual life is everyday life. I've said this before, everyday life is spiritual life. Someone's sick in your family, that's spiritual life because you have to take care of that or pray for that person, help that person. When they're sick, they become sometimes out of it. They're nervous. They tell you off. A woman who's um, giving birth, and some of you have experienced it, to know that when they're giving birth, they can be very aggressive, very aggressive at the time, and they can swear, they can tell you off, they can be very hurtful and hit the, hit the husband, hit the nurses, whatever, and, and, you know, you're saying, well, I'm here, I'm helping you, I'm helping you during the birth, and that can become quite wounding. But you say, the person's sick, so that's spiritual life, understanding that the person's suffering called empathy. Enduring slander, when someone says something false about you and it spreads everywhere, that's an asceticism. Enduring gossip, Enduring, um, that could be from your neighbourhood, from, from it can be from your work, it can be from your school, it can be even from church, where people can be gossiping or even uh, making up slanders, and for you to endure that, like Saint Nectarius endured all those slanders. And that is a great asceticism because once those slanders get out, it's very hard to rectify it. People always have that suspicion. I heard that. I heard that. The Holy Fathers say that slander is one of the worst sins because it's like you've thrown up a whole bunch of feathers and then they fly everywhere. You can't collect them. They're gone. That's the same as slander. Once you throw one out, it just goes everywhere, and it's very hard to fix that problem up. And a person who has to endure that, it's difficult. The person who slandered later on repents has to suffer as well, knowing that that slander has affected that person's life. Enduring financial crisis, that's difficult. Using prayer, etc., to help you, using hope in God, unemployment. For some people, it's an asceticism to get rid of their credit cards. What do I mean by that? It's so, it's so dear to them. It's just part of it's like It's like a drug. And even though the credit cards has caused a lot of this problem and loans and all that, let's say the credit card, where people have become obsessed with just credit, 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 don't think about anything. So actually, for someone to give up the credit card and say, I'm not going to have a credit card anymore and get the scissors to actually cut it, it's like they're going through withdrawal symptoms, how difficult it is to get rid of it. But in a way, that's asceticism too, because why? Because it's wrong. Is it a sin to have a credit card? No, it's not a sin to have a credit card, but it's a sin to, like a crazy person, to go and put on and on and on and on and on and on, such that people, if their credit card's a $5,000 limit, say, or 10, and even today they're given really more than that, 15. The person is always on the 15, and they're just paying the minimum. Let's so say someone's on $5,000 credit. It's always $5,000, and what's the minimum payment? It might be 10 to $15 a month or whatever. So they just pay that. Or if they get it down a bit, they go and buy something else, back up again. So it's always at $5,000. So if you're paying $5,000 or $10,000, you're paying interest of 17% or whatever they are now. Some of them are 18 what for? And not only that, if you default on your credit card, they got the right to actually, um, from what I've seen lately, that they got the right to put you into, um, on the bad list where you just basically, banks won't give you loans and things like that. They can even go repossess your house, even though the credit card's got nothing to do with the house. So, yes, it is a sin. So you have to watch out of the, of the way we do things like that. Working in difficult circumstances... And conditions, for example, you might have a horrible boss, just a p- horrible person, and you are working under that person and how hard it is, how hurtful it is. Yes, you're going to have to use prayer, apodactosis, an akathist, asking God to help you to endure this man or to change his heart or woman. Inappropriate music, where you have to work somewhere, I don't know, it's, that's very hard, where you know, you have to listen to music all day and if you're living a spiritual life, then you go home and you're trying to pray and the music's in your head. Some of you listen to music anyway, but I'm talking about the ones who don't. Who don't want to listen to it. And that's really, really hard. That's, that's what happened to me in one of the school that I was at, where they had the radio in the staff room. So I would wait till everyone was gone. Then I'd go and turn it off. Then someone would come in and turn it back on again. Then I'd turn it back off. I didn't know who it was. I think the might that worked out was me. This became too much, so I went, got a chair, and pulled the wire out from the back. That was good for a few days because they didn't know what was wrong with it until they found it. <laughs> they found the fact that it was the wire that was gone. But you know, after a while, they just didn't turn it on anymore. Thanks God. That was just listening to that all day. So that's difficult, you know, that's all stuff. Or listening to swearing or filthy jokes. But in some work environments, it's just all day and all night. Some people find that really difficult at leading spiritual lives as well as having to um, sometimes get absorbed into it where you can actually laugh at it or get involved. You can lose yourself and you come home and what have I done and things like that. So all those things are difficult, feeling pressure, sometimes to go to worldly things that you don't want to go to. You might, they might say, oh, let's go to a bar, let's go here, let's go this and this and, that. and you say, no, now... Another difficult one is when it's um, Lent or Wednesday and Friday. That used to happen to to me. Friday was pizza day. (laughs) My mouth watered all day. (laughs) All day. And it was a temptation. So I'm there having my honey sandwich (laughs) while they are having this... Pizza, which was smelling so really, really nice. And the other one, which was bad, was the end of year. And they got this beautiful table full of food. And I'm eating celery sticks. <laughs> and carrots. And that, is, that, to me, is asceticism. Sorry, but when you're actually saying, because what stops us to go and have some? But for us to say no... It means that we are doing it because we want to follow God's commandments. So that is difficult. Oh, and the other thing was birthdays, when teachers would have birthdays and they're coming with these beautiful cream cakes. Right? That was difficult to donuts, It's always Wednesdays and Fridays. I don't understand how... <laughs> um, so that was difficult. And I know some of you have also... And some of you, I know, and I think people have fallen to this, but they just say, I don't care, and they go and eat. I'll make it up later. We'll just have to repent about that, but still, that's a citizen. One's a fall, which can be rectified through repentance. One's a struggle where you're asking God, please help me not to break the fast and help me." Struggling with pornographic billboards and magazines and calendars now, which has become a really bad problem, even if you don't indulge yourself because you don't look at the Internet or you protect yourself from the Internet, etc., etc., it's all out there in the open as well. And for today, for Christians, that is a great ascetical feat. To protect your eyes, to be careful, it's just right there in your face. And to protect your children, which is horrible as well. Being forced to do illegal things at work or even by your family at the threat of losing your job or just falling into disfavor with your family. There was a story which I said the other time about three months ago, which I didn't finish, was about the guy who was doing taxi driving and uh, he came to me and I said to him, well, you've got to declare all your money to the tax, all your money to the tax, because as a taxi driver you could get away with, you know, black money as they call it. And um, once he told his family that, the family went crazy. And I paid for it, a few bricks through the window, and, um, and that's not a joke. All right, got a couple of bricks in the window. I also told him to, I said to him, you know, uh, in, uh, Christ wants us to keep ourselves pure. Keep your virginity until marriage. Okay? That one was a couple of baseball bats, but I didn't go out that day, so I was saved. But that shows you how difficult it is. You say, oh, why don't priests speak up? Why don't priests speak up? Well, that's because they don't want their heads to be baseball, baseballs. Or soccer balls from being kicked and hit and like, It's very, very difficult. So we are living in times where, you know, you can't hardly say anything at all. You've got to be very careful. So even for one to keep themselves pure for marriage, even that's sometimes difficult. And at work, where people, are, you know, your boss or someone's telling you you have to do this, you have to, you have to lie, lie on the phone, do this, do that. What do you do then? What does God want us to do? And it could be that, you know, you either try and get around it or you might have to leave, go somewhere else. But I've got a family. What happens if I leave my job? What am I going to feed my family? But yet, this is where you've got the faith. Logically, using our, you know, to rationalise it, we say this is all impossible. But when you have faith with God, all things are possible. I was talking to a woman and she said to me, "Um, uh, we... Uh, all our years we never paid taxes or we used to cheat because they, they used to... Um, when you do some certain jobs, you, you can cheat. You know, whether you've got a shop or whether you're a, a labourer or whatever, you can cheat. And I told her that, that that's not right. And she says, you know, now that I think of it, I think what you're saying is right because we have never progressed. Nothing is blessed. Cheating on Social Security... And all those type of things, they never get blessed. Christ says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In other words, pay the taxes. And also there was an example in the lives of saints during the Turkish times, the Turks used to actually tax the Greeks really badly, unfairly, high taxes. And some Greeks used to hide it. They used to not give the Turks the full amount of the tax. And a saint appeared to them and said, that is a sin, give them What they ask for and trust in God. See? Logically, we can't understand it. You need faith. We need God's grace to be able to say no at the chance of losing your job or no at whatever, etc., etc. There's all these circumstances that occur. Having to refrain from gatherings that are inappropriate at the cost of being disliked by family and relatives. Example, certain birthday parties. You want to send your children to a birthday party, and then to have Bozo there, or to have go to Ronald's place, and to have this this person dressed up in the, in the makeup and acting like a gala. You don't want your children to learn those things. And then if you don't take them there, then people are going to say, oh, you know, you're a, you're a bad parent because you're not letting your children become familiar with Ronald or with other things like that. So sometimes even that, but even not only that. There's sometimes you might be invited to a birthday party, it might be an 18, an 18 where there's heavy metal, where they're praising the devil. What do you do about that? Or weddings. I usually advise people to go, I say, go to the church and then use an excuse not to go to the reception. Very easy to use excuses. You're not feeling well. You know, the children are not well or whatever. Could be a lot of reasons to get out of it. Excuse yourself. Because at those weddings, a lot of times, it is really, really bad. Now, say I'm like a pregnant woman uh, where the baby can hear everything and the pregnant woman's there and the music's blaring and that what, that child's going to get terrorised. We know that from Elder Porfirios that he said that the child gets affected from the environment and the mother's feelings and the smoke. See, today... We're allowed to say, um, because after um, all these decades of these people fighting the tobacco industry, now we can say safely that being in a room with a smoker or being in a car while you're smoking and your children are there will affect them. That's become acceptable. But are we allowed to say as Christians that being in an environment which is not good will affect us? Not that we judge those people, that's their business, but we are taking care of our souls. And those receptions a lot of times are bad. Drunken, blasphemous, sexual, sexually based and things like that, it's really bad. Now, so I used to say to people, go to the church. But then what happens now, as I said before, is that that's become a mockery as well. So it's really hard when you've got the motorbikes outside and you've got, I went to a wedding once many years ago before I was a priest and I only found out years later on the whole bridal party was stoned. They thought that was a joke. They thought that was really funny. And the woman, uh, the, the, what do you call it, the bride and the groom and all the guys and all the go- all of them were stoned. And then they dress inappropriately. And they say inappropriate things. And the priests will say some inappropriate things sometimes too. And this is becoming very at hand. And as Christians, everyone's kind of becoming, well, what do we do? It's very, very difficult. So that's an asceticism. That is asceticism, to know what do we do in this situation? How do we get about it? Do we offend God? Do we offend these people? Having discernment to know how to get around. What happens if it's your sister that's getting married? And you might say, so what do we do? Well, I don't know because I have to hear the situation. Every situation is different. It depends what exactly is going on. If the person's coming to get married and she's wearing a bikini, well, obviously it's a bit difficult, wouldn't it be? And that's how it's getting to the stage after that last episode on TV, what was shown. And don't think that the bike is a joke. They actually, there are weddings, where, Greek of where they've come in with bi- bikes and hot rods, and it's just oh, a mockery and revving up while the service is going on. Remember in Greece what I told you what happens during the services in some churches when... The priest goes around the table when they're doing the dance of Isaiah, and um, during the um, the ceremony, there's a part there where the priest takes around the husband, the man and woman, around the table, and they walk around. You know about that three times, I think. And in Greece, there's some places, some with some irreligious creatures who actually uh, think that it's fun to get those almond lollies. You know the almond lollies; those they're like rocks. Right, They've got icing with an arm in the middle and they actually, uh, it's a joke for them to throw the arm and lollies at the priest during that time. And the, I was at a wedding once in Corfu and it's in Greece and Ireland and the priest, he, has, he had to hold the gospel, the metal gospel, over his eyes so he doesn't get hit in the eye. And I said to him, I was a lay person, like, how do you do that? And goes, that's how they are. But I couldn't do that. I, for me personally, I couldn't do that. But then again, I'm not a parish priest, am I? So I can't really judge them of what they've got to go through, but I can just do what I want to do and that's it. And as a monk, I've got the right to say, oh, I don't do weddings. We'll get around it. But it's really difficult in the world today in parishes. There's just so much pressure on the priest to conform to them. And if you do go against it, you lose your job. Now, I say, logically, that's bad, you lose your job. But with God, we say, okay, you lose your job, but then the bishop's got to put you somewhere. Maybe he might put you in a little church. Accept it. Like uh, Nicholas Planas. Say so Nicholas Planas was just a little church, all he had was about six, seven families, and became a great saint. Does it really matter? See, if I was at an ordinary church, I couldn't... I don't think I'd be allowed to even speak like this if I was being paid by them. But I didn't get paid, which means I do what I want, you see? And I'm saying what I feel, what my conscience told me. But if I was a parish priest, it's more difficult. So we've got to be careful when we judge. I don't judge them. Personally, I can't do it. But I don't have kids. Just being a little bit understanding towards their situations. Do you know that that they're not allowed, that that actually a lot of priests are scared to baptise the child fully under the water because the parents go crazy and they say, you're drowning my child. So where before was a tradition, which the Russians still do it, to put the child three times under the water completely, the problem in the Greek church, for example, now, is that people don't baptise their children young. In the Russian church, they baptise eight days old or 40 days old when they're young. But when these Greeks, when they go to these churches, a lot of times, maybe Antiochians to other Serbians, I'm not sure, they when they take their children, the children are really big sometimes. Sometimes they even walking. <laughs> then the priest is trying to baptise, and it's just like he's fighting an alligator or something <laughs> and trying to put it into the font, and then the parents get upset, and you're going to drown, them, and all this type of... Commotion goes on, so they're actually scared to even do that. That's how bad it's got. Even at uh, the local swimming thing, they allow their children to be put under the water at any age so they can learn, just throw them in, but not allowed in church. So I don't know what's going on there. But, um, you know, there's all these theories now that you put the child in and it learns to, you know, things like that. So, The priests also go through asceticism too. That's really difficult for them in these days. Temptations, to I've said that, to cheat on the tax, social security, working on Sunday. Some people have jobs where they have to work on Sunday, nurses, other things like that. Others can't get out of it because that's the way it is. Some of them can get out of it but they choose to work. Then the money obtained on Sunday is cursed. It doesn't give anything. I know a lot of tradespeople who, as I've said before, they work on Sundays They say, oh, that's the only time we're going to get the money. And say, yes, but at the end of the day, what have you got? They're all chasing their tail. They don't win. Maybe some exceptions might win, but in general, they don't win. Working a second job, not declaring the tax. You know, some people use the excuse, oh, how are we going to live? That's why years ago when I used to do confessions, not many people came. They knew if they came... They gotta give the money back. So they don't come, which is better for me. I had less people because they don't want to they don't wanna if they're after salvation, why wouldn't they want the priest to say it? But some people that came, they used to sit down and calculate how much money that they think that they ripped off from the tax. Three, four, five, six, some some were ten thousand. I said to them, Okay, now pay it back. They go, Oh, can I give it to the poor? No, you have to give it to the tax department. If you stole the money because you're a tradesperson from someone that you don't know where they are now, then you can give that money to the poor. Say, for example, you overquoted a job. The job was worth five, but you quoted seven or eight. You ripped off the person $3,000. Where's that person? Gone. You don't know where they are. Then you can give that money to the poor. But when you know where the person is, you give it back to the person. If you don't want to have any legal uh, uh, repercussions, because you don't want someone to say, I'm going to call the police, whatever, you can send them anonymously the money back. Some people didn't want to get involved with the tax department. They said, I don't want to get involved with them because they're going to... Who knows what they're going to do and all that. I said, OK, send them a postal note uh, and just send it to them. They'll just think it's a refund check and they won't know what's going on, as long as it goes back to them. Now, people will say, oh, that's illogical. The government's got money. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. That's what God wants us to do. That's what we do. It's not our business to work out with our mind whether um, Mr. Rudd has got too much taxes or whatever, or Howard before, all these things. It's not our business. Some people say, oh, but they're going to use the tax money to make um, war, uh, um, planes or uh, bombs and things like that. That's not our business. Our business is to do God's commandments. Remembering sins that have had an irrepressible effect on others, even though it's been confessed. and Yeah, like some people, I've said before, have done things to people, and later on when they repent, it makes them feel really guilty what they've done to those people. And uh, what happens if the person's died? Well, in November, we're going to be doing a talk on helping the dead. That's the November talk. And in that talk... We will be explaining about when someone dies, what happens if you've done something bad to them? How do you make up for that? What happens if you're the cause of your child or someone being damaged? You're a driver of a car or you dropped the child or you did things like that. A lot of times that, when a person gets guilty, it's very, very painful and dealing with that pain, even though they're forgiven, if they've repented, still, as we read last month, there's still the effect of, oh, what have I done? And you can get into hopelessness and lose yourself. This is where you have to with your ascetical life to actually get over that with prayer and hope in God. Difficulty of not conforming with the world of fashion. Now, a lot of women have suffered from this, where they're living in a world where it's makeup, fashion, weight, everything. And you know, as Christians, we don't do that. So someone says, Is it a sin to go with the fashion? It's a sin in that if you're wasting money to buy like a little bag that can cost $300 because it's got a trade name, whatever you call it, has a fashion name on there. Now, that's a sin because that money can be used to give to the poor or for your family. Of course it's a sin. Now, others will say, is make a sin? It is a sin to disfigure one's face when God has given us what we are. And Elder Paiusra says that, and the Holy Fathers say that, and the canons say that. Now, someone say, oh, so am I going to go to work without... Why? A lot of people go to work without makeup. What do you have to wear makeup for? The truth of the matter is, some women, it's a passion, and it's really hard for them. They have to personally struggle with that. And it's up to them when they want to give it up and how they're going to give it up. Uh, did makeup, worldly interests. Music, certain music that people try and say, oh, do you listen to this, do you do that? All these things are difficult, especially when you're not interested. And also agreeing with sexual immorality. When at work, they go, oh, if a woman can't have the baby, what's wrong with an abortion? You're just sitting there and you have to say, what do you have to say? They don't ask you, that's okay, just sit there. But if they ask you, what do you think? And then you know there's 10 people in the coffee room waiting for your answer. And then for you to say, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, and I agree with you. That's a sin. So Elder Paiso says that when you're asked, if you're in a country where it's, uh, it's against the law to be a Christian, so you're hiding it, that's okay, because that's not a sin. You're hiding it, you're not know, saying. But if someone catches you and says, are you a Christian, then he says, you have to say yes, knowing that you're going to. Be. If you don't, then it's called denial. So it's the same People say to me a lot of times, I go to the shop and they go, oh, Father, we are all the same, they say to me. Might be a Catholic say, we are all the same. And I just stand there and don't say anything. But if they say to me, what do you think, then I have to say it. Because they asked me. But before he just met up, he was philosophising. He thinks he was on a a stage and I don't know what he was doing there um, as he was packing the bananas and vegetables and all that. But the point is, he didn't ask me. So we've got to be careful that we're not denying our faith. Some people are single, or even if they're married these days, and people are, are saying to them, oh, you know, when are you going to get married? And this guy, and I know this guy, I know this girl, why don't you go out? Um, what's wrong with you? Are you gay? Are you this? All these things are difficult, especially when someone has chosen not to get married, for example. They don't feel that they're able to get married, or circumstances occur. They had to take care of their parents or something happened to them. They're not married. And being labelled with all those things, oh, what's wrong with you and you're going to be lonely and why aren't you married and why don't you have a guy why don't you have a girl, all these things uh, are difficult as well for someone who's doing something according to what God wants. If you're not married, then relationships of that type are not allowed if you want to follow what God wants. So that's hard. The upbringing of children, a lot of times people, the way the Christians bring up children is opposite to the world. See, so the world would say, oh, you know, if your child's crying a lot, just put a DVD on there, occupy them for hours. We say, no, don't do that because it's going to wreck them up. So you don't let your children watch DVDs, no? You're nuts, they say to you, because you're um, going to lose yourself the dead DVDs keep them quiet. It keeps them quiet at the time, but later on they go mad or they can't sleep because they're overactive and things like that. Um, whether we fast our children, the way we discipline the children, if we decide to homeschool, or even though if we send them to school, what we're interested in, do they go to sex education? They don't. All these things are difficult because everyone's against. Loneliness. Some people end up um, lonely because their spouses died, or they never got married, and, and that in itself is an asceticism because they're on their own and they have to trust God and say, God, that's how you've arranged it, I have to accept it. But it's hard to be lonely. And to endure loneliness is ascetical. Struggling with your thoughts and feelings, that in itself is ascetical, just controlling your thoughts, your feelings, that's not right things like that, that's very, very difficult. A young man said to me once, he just entered the church and he had to give up all his friends because they just they weren't Christians. They used to do sins before. They used to go out. It wasn't appropriate. And therefore, it was a whole new thing for him. So he went on a little walk. He was going for a walk in the streets and thinking about himself and the difficulties. And he was thinking about, oh, I have to wake up and I have to do prayers. I have to watch my thoughts, I've got to go and confess. So he found it all very burdensome. And he was walking along and it was a winter day and there was a door open, it was a screen door, and he could see through the house as he was walking and there was a person there sitting on their lounge, with their feet up, had a beautiful heater on and watching TV and the person was overcome at that time and says, look at them, they don't have to worry about their thoughts. They don't have to worry about prayers. They don't have to worry about their passions. They don't have to fight this and fight that. It's all easy for them. And he began to lose himself, and he said to himself, yes, but this is not really the real world. It just came to him. This is not really the real life. And somehow he looked at that life, when he saw that, he looked at it, not that he hated the person, but he looked at it as being sick, horrible. It was like pointless. And it changed him. But still, he went through that particular struggle. And um, that's it. So that was a whole list. I hope I didn't bore you. Um, that on, the, on just a, a list that, I'm, that I put together, some people help me a bit too, because sometimes you don't think of things, of what can be ascetical, but we don't know it. Now, are there any questions before we end? Manual. Nothing. Not like you. Yep. In the old days, the question is, why is it excruciating to bring up children? In the old days, and still in some countries, but when people used to have come from families of eight, nine children, and they had a lot of, of, it was extended families, then older, would take care of the younger. They learnt. It was part of their life. They learnt to cook, they learnt to clean. Men learnt to do work and things like that. It was part of their life. While today, when you've got young girls and young men that, you know, go on to 25 or 30 years old, they've never used the washing machine. There's something as simple as that. They can't cook, male or female, doesn't matter. Some women can't iron. Some guys have never taken the garbage out in their whole life. So when they get married, the garbage stays there because that's what they've never learned. A lot of times, and it stinks. Um, they just don't have what's called the, um, the equipment, you know, the makeup to actually cope with life. And that's why there's a very high divorce rate. People can't cope with much anymore because of what's not part of their life. When you come from families of two children or whatever that, you know, and, uh, and, you're, and then you have hardly no cousins or no other nephews or nieces and things like that. See, I came from a family of four. So my sister got married at 17, for example, 18, whatever she was. So she had children very young. So I was an uncle at 10 or 11 or something like that. So I was holding children at 11 years old. Some people, the first child they ever hold is... Either a doll that they do in the prenatal classes where they learn with a doll or something, this is how you hold it, this is how you do that, or son, actually the first baby that they ever hold is their own. They don't even know how to hold the head. But people say to me, oh, look, what's wrong with that person, like that man or that woman? Like They're holding the child and the child's head's back like that. (laughs) They don't know. They don't know how to feed children. Some of them don't even know how to feed themselves. So, and that's not a joke. So that, does that answer your question? That's just, today, a lot of people have been brought up in a generation... Well, for example, a lot of people watch just TV. They are not doing anything practical. It's just sitting there in front of the TV. They're not doing anything. That's why one school in Melbourne, which was interesting, I think it's a private school, they actually... Maybe even a public I'm not sure. They said, enough is enough. We, we The kids are just doing theory at, at school a lot of times. Then they go home and do homework. They say, we're not going to give any homework... We want the children to do practical things. We want the children to help at home, to clean up, you know, to do all these things. People today are ill-prepared for married life. That's the truth, yes. I saw that. that. That she put that is not that good the, the kids are learning how to actually clean... There might have been some abuse in that case. Yeah. I don't know, but in general... But in general... The children good. should learn gardening. The children should learn to clean. You know, like, um, even young children you know, even as, as, as eight years old or nine years old can be given responsibilities, today they've got no responsibilities. Even eight years old, it's OK, your job is to clean, to get rid of the plates, you know, collect the plates or do the table. I mean, I was eight years old and my parents had a shop and I was cooking my own food. I learnt from young to clean plates. But some people don't know any of that stuff. You know, I had lacking of other things. For example, my father never, ever, ever made me cut the grass. Never. He just, he just that, that was the way he was. He used to do it himself. He never forced. He just said, "Well, he doesn't. Not interested. He's not interested." So I never cut the grass. So when my father passed away, to my shame, um, uh, no one was cutting the grass. So what happened was, the grass would be very long, and my mother didn't like that. She was getting upset, and she was embarrassed because I was a lad that would just sit there and I didn't think, didn't, it didn't move me at all that the grass was up to my belly button. didn't <laughs> didn't bother me. <laughs> so she'd have to get other people to come and do it to her embarrassment. Now I can see that. I can see that um, I was not taught. That was not part of my... That was never part of the thing. I learnt other things, you know, a few other... But I never learnt that. So... By doing that to our kids, we are actually destroying them and making them ill-equipped that they're not going to be able to function. And even Dr Phil and all those people, they're all saying the same thing now, even though church has known it for years. They're actually saying it. People are are very dysfunctional, can't get married. Any other questions before we end? Alexi. That's different. Your question is if you've got... Yeah, that's... This is Look, the examples that I'm giving, the, the question is if you've got a bad boss and then you're enduring, him but then after a while you want to leave, not because of that reason but you want to go to another job to further your career or to go up on the ladder, there's nothing wrong with that. In general, some people can't move. That's it. That's where they are. And that can be an opportunity... I remember once someone wanted to lead a spiritual life and she wanted to become a novice, a nun or whatever she wanted. And then she went to a monastery and then the spiritual mother or father, whatever there was there, was telling her things and said to her, look, you're very self-willed. You actually are self-willed. You don't listen. You don't listen. And um, at the end she had to leave because she couldn't submit to anything. She couldn't submit. So she went out and went back and got another a job. She used to work. She got a job as a secretary whatever it was. So she went somewhere to this boss. And this boss was, in a way, horrible and would often tell her the following. You don't listen. You can't follow instructions. You can't exactly the things that were said to her when she was at the monastery. But she didn't. Anyway, so God said, you didn't want to take it there. Now take it here. And she'd break down, and she used to cry, et cetera, et cetera. And when she told me about it, I said to her, "Look, that's it. That's your cross. That that's it. That's what God's given you to help you find humility." So, but to give formulas for everyone, you can't do. We're speaking generally. This is where, if you've got a spiritual father, and then and plus you pray and things like, that, where God gives us our direction specifically for us, for our individual. Needs for our, individual, our own individuality, everyone's different. Some people, I would say, to leave if I would see that they actually might lose themselves. You know what I mean? Some people are that. Some people, no, it, everyone's different. But in general, yes, having these people who are honest can be very good for us. However, if we want to leave to go and get a, another job for other reasons, for better yourself, that's all different. That's not, that's not wrong. Is that what you're asking? Mm-hmm. Everyone, remember we said to the, that elder, that the elder Porphyrios, when we did that talk, he, he, he said that 10 individuals would come to him with the same problem, but to the 10, he gave different advice, different, because everyone's different, everyone's makeup. It's, it's up to their background, their, their mental problems, their emotional state. Uh, their education, their understanding, their intelligence, all these play a role. So each person is given different advice according to the thing. We spoke generally today. Some people, for example, they say, I've got to go to the wedding because it's my sister. And some people would go. And they'll have to try and bear it and try and avoid as much as possible and things like that. And then if they if they feel that they've sinned then they have to repent to God and ask for forgiveness and you know there's all the everyone's different that's why it's important to have a spiritual father any other questions? without a me. oh good thank you for reminding me now today's book club is what I was trying to say there was a lot of things I wanted to to do more but obviously I never get to finish anything that i start is um, the importance of spiritual life, one of the things that Elder Paiso says, he says, when you want to get rid of that rational part of you, and he goes, read Canons to the Mother of God, which is in the compline which you people don't have access to, it's more for monastics. But the thing is that prayer is important, not just prayer in your own words, because a lot of times we don't know how to pray. We need to have prayer. So that's why what we did, some of you already got them, but what we did is we purchased from overseas, from Jordanville here, Um, The prayer book, for example, because a lot of people have been asking. The prayer book has a lot of acathists in there. It's got the liturgy, but it's also got canons to the guardian angel, etc. When you pray every day using these books, slowly, slowly you actually do change your whole... You start to lose that blasphemous, rational type of where you try to work everything out, and you begin to um, become... Where, the, where God's grace comes in the person. And the other one, which is good, this one was, has been out for years. It's the Book of Akathists. Akathists are very nice to do. This has been out for years, and they've got uh, oh, all those Akathists. They've got Akathists to St. John the Baptist, St. Herman of Alaska, St. Saint George, St. Saint Alexis, St. Saint Paddelimon, St. Saint Seraphim, etc., et Mother of God, different icons... Akathist um, before communion, which is beautiful. Akathist to the resurrection of Christ. Then they just produced, I don't know how long ago, but I've never seen it before until I purchased it. They've got a a second book now. And there's a lot here to the Mother of God and to various saints Uh, Grand Duchess Elizabeth, Saint Sophia and her three daughters, uh, Holy Apostle Luke, Mary of Egypt. So, for example, someone's having problems with the flesh, sexual passions, and etc. Mary of Egypt. And Holy Apostle um, Matthew, Often the Elders, Zlata, which is um, uh, Slavonic for um, gold, I think. We say um, it's. Uh, um, I think, yeah. Anyway, so that is uh, the second book. So my encouragement is even though this book's going to be a little bit expensive, but uh, is always to have Orthodox prayer books and use them. Don't try to pray just in your own words because you won't know how to do it, especially if you haven't got these books. This book I love because it's got the morning prayers and it's got the night prayers, a whole list of prayers. This teaches us how to pray. By doing this every night and listening to the words, after a while then you're able to pray a bit more with your own own heart. But if you you don't know the words, you might be praying wrong you learn how to refer to the Holy Trinity. We learn how to pray to the Holy Spirit. We learn how to pray to our guardian angel. And we learn how to pray to the saints. This helps us how to think, how to feel, how to be absorbed in the spirit of the church. So that's the three. That's the prayer book, which most of you I think have already got, Book of Akathis number 1, and Book of Akathis number 2. Stand up. The program for the next talk. I also have a new pamphlet. Uh, inspired by last month's talk on the Holy Light. I know some of you bought the book. This is about the Holy Light, which is there. It's a new pamphlet. The rest some of you have already got. And there's the program there. Um, through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy on us, save us. Amen.